Before we get started with this podcast, the Brian and I wanted to give a little disclaimer. We had so many people when we were recording that we had to record a little bit different, and so the sound quality might be not as high as you're used to. It also is the reason why this podcast is longer than the average podcast has yeah, been. Ex- exactly. There's a couple segments where we go around and see everybody's individual opinions, and it just takes epically long. So, anyway, we just wanted to let you guys know that was going on, and also, um, if we're a little off, this was recorded the day after New Year's Eve. Thus, we were all either exhausted, hungover, sick, or some combination of the bunch. Yeah, exactly. And now, well, on with the show. On with the show. Podcast. This is Panda Mega Podcast number five. We have a full house today, seven including myself. So let's go around and introduce ourselves. Again, uh, like always, I'm JP. Uh, Joe. Dustin. The admin. This is Chaz, and it's great to be here. Once again, this is Brian. And I'm Biggs. Alright, so today our topic is games. <laughs> now, it's probably one of the reasons why it's such a big group is that we're all gamers and we all have uh, you know lots of very strong opinions um, we will get uh, into the meat of it a little bit later but first I want to talk a little housekeeping so in the comic production part of Panda Manga we have made a lot of uh, incredible strides we're really starting to kind of pick up speed and have actually reached a couple landmarks which is very exciting we are almost a quarter of the way through with all of the content uh, backlogging. I also spoke with uh, D. Caster the other day, which if you were there for the Panda Manga podcast number two, we spoke about his contributions, upcoming contributions. I spoke with him on the phone the other day, and he is sending out a disc with high-res images for me of the uh, first about three months' worth of content coming from him. So very excited to see that. I can't wait to have that. Uh, I will speak with him and see if he is comfortable with us maybe putting up a little preview, sneak peek, something like that on the blog. So stay tuned for that. Also, Decaster is a veteran of the con circuit, <laughs> of the convention circuit. He has a lot of really great ideas and a lot of really, really good uh, methods, really, to share things and uh, has good connections. And so we brainstormed a little bit, and we're going to be collaborating on some merchandise. And he will hopefully be with us at the Ape Convention uh, coming this summer. For, yeah, yeah. Happy New Year, by the way. <laughs> happy New Year, everyone. <laughs> right. Yeah. Unless you're so, in China. That's true. In that case, happy January. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, ape for 2012, again, we will uh, make our damnedest efforts to be there. The plan is to have a good, to, to get a table and set up, share some merchandise, and promote the website. And also, hopefully, hook up with some more independent comic artists and, you know, get more content for the site and more for our loyal viewers to enjoy. Uh, and again, so hopefully we'll, we'll be there with, uh, with Decaster and some cool merchandise. And again, if you are an artist or, uh, and have comics or are looking to collaborate with uh, artists or have an idea for a comic, please contact us at our contact form, contact.pandamanga.com. Exactly. We're always looking for more people to collaborate with us. That is what Panda Manga is about, is giving a leg up to young independent artists that you know, maybe don't have the money to start up with 
all of the paper publishing or aren't really com comfortable with web publishing or web design or anything like that and would really like to have something more professional available online than you know just a deviant art website or something like that. No love for the older independent uh, <laughs> comic artists, huh? Y young as in how long they've been doing it. Ah, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And one final item in housekeeping is that the podcast is actually going to be set up so that we are going to be doing it bi-weekly instead of weekly. We love doing the podcast. It's a lot of fun, but it's also a lot of work. I mean, so every other week. Every other week, yes. My apologies. Every other week we're going to put out a podcast. The reason that we are doing that is because while it is fun, we all enjoy doing it, it is a lot of work, especially for JP, and it is kind of slowing down the progress of launching pandamanga.com, which is what we are really here to do. So we are switching it to a every other week format, at least for the time being. It may be permanent. It may just be a temporary thing. We don't know yet. Yeah, we'll see. And moving forward with uh, doing the podcast and working on the website, the most important part is getting the comics up and getting them quality and keeping our deadlines. You know, we believe here that it's really, really important to, you know, make a promise and keep it. And so if we're going to say, hey, we're going to have this comic come out weekly on this day at this time, it's going to be there for you guys. And if it's not going to be, we will make a public announcement of it on the website, hopefully at least a day or two in advance, so that nobody is caught off guard and coming on there expecting something and then finding nothing. You know, we understand how important it is for us to have that consistency and for you guys to have faith in us. And so we want to build that trust. So in the spirit of not overcommitting, we will be doing the podcast every other week. And focusing more on the comics so that everything works and flows a little bit more smoothly and we don't miss a bunch of deadlines and become a big fat train wreck. <laughs> so next up is the Skyward Sword review with the administrator. Again, the administrator is on loan from zombieegg.com, or zombie-egg.com, which came up against a little bit of a uh, hacker attack recently. So if you go there right now, it may not be up and available by the time that you hear this, but, uh, you know... Trust that they are working on things behind the scenes to get it back up and ready and, and uh, keep the, the zombie info flowing. That's definitely correct. Um, it's actually a fairly good time for this to happen because we were planning a redesign. So now we have even more inspiration to get that done since we're starting with pretty much a blank slate. We were hoping that we'd be able to salvage some of the old data, and it's not looking like we're going to be able to. So uh, yeah. it's going to be completely brand new, fresh new look, everything about Zombie Egg, which is pretty exciting. And I think at the very least, we will try and get it up a little bit before the official launch of Panamango.com, mm -hmm. um, just so it kind of aligns better with SCB and so on. And again, we haven't really made any um, uh, official promises about the launch with Panamango.com. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the tentative time frame is something near springtime. You know, I'm, again, I'm not going to say a date or even a month because... Again, we want to have enough backlogged content to be confident with our regular release dates. Uh, you know, again, it's so important for us to be able to make those those dates and keep our promises with you guys. So, you know, in the spirit of that, I'm not going to make a promise that we can't keep yet. But, you know, do you can't expect things to be coming out by springtime. So our launch timeline is soon. <laughs> yeah, our launch time is soon to be determined. So, yeah, so around that time. And uh, actually, just a quick side note. Uh, over dinner, the 8th Henry, the administrator, and I were talking a little bit. Oh, and the Brian also. We're talking a little bit about some of the new things that they're looking to have on the Zombie Egg website. Uh, would you guys like to talk a little bit about the uh, the pirate broadcast? 
It's, it's in its baby stages. It's in its baby stages, but it's a really cool idea, and we've been working on it and coming up with some concepts, and it's, it's going to be a whole lot of fun. Yeah, it's something that the 8th Henry is really all about. Um, it's probably going to be his baby project. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen I Am Legend, uh, where the character, you know, every morning broadcasts just for 15 minutes or so? That's the kind of energy that he's going to try and get out. Um, so basically, it'll be post-zombie apocalypse, little reports. I know that he's going to have it um, done in San Francisco. Uh, that's going to be his like little central hub, but he'll have reports about the rest of the country, rest of California. Uh, it's shaping up to be pretty cool, but I don't want to say too much. It's definitely something that he's all about, and I don't want to accidentally reveal something that he didn't want to be revealed. It, it, I, yeah, I, again, I don't want to say too much, but I can allude to some of the some of the really unique ideas that we're looking at. It's going to be less of a podcast uh, or a news update and more of like a radio show sort of thing. You know, the, uh, you know, it'll be kind of done in the guise of him broadcasting in the future after the apocalypse has already happened. So, you know, giving things like updates about zombie movements and where it is and isn't safe and stuff and, you know, a lot more content than just that. But that's kind of the idea. And it's, it's, it's shaping up to be really creative and interesting. And from all the searches I've done and research that we've been prepping with, I haven't found anything else like that on the Internet. So Another thing that it is similar to, if you've seen the movie Terminator Salvation... What yes. John Connor is doing in the beginning, where he is broadcasting the voice of the resistance. Right, exactly. So, cool. So, let's move on to the review of Skyward Sword with the administrator. Link, it come to town. I really hate to say what I'm about to say, but I didn't like it. Really? Now, that, that's interesting <laughs> because the administrator is, of everybody that I know, the biggest fan of Zelda. Perhaps a little backstory is in order. Back in the day, when Nintendo 64 was first released, JP actually introduced me to Zelda. Oh, really? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, you no, brought your Nintendo my, 64 It's my over. fault. Yeah. Well, I mean, you had introduced me to Link to the Past, and I was already well obsessed with that. Mm-hmm. But you brought your Nintendo 64 over, showed me Ocarina of Time, and that was the end. <laughs> I believe within a month, I had sold all of my Beanie Babies. <laughs> <laughs> and, okay, now that we've properly dated ourselves, <laughs> I sold all of my Beanie Babies, and this was a time when there were, you know, really good prices for the damn things. I went and bought a Nintendo 64 with my Beanie Baby money, an Ocarina of Time, and I played that for damn well, oh, I want to say three or four years solidly. <laughs> How many times do you think you've played through? I can't even count. <laughs> I mean, there were... I was so obsessed with that game that there were times where literally I would just, you know, having beat the game, you know, several times, you know, even hacked it so I'd beat it as uh, Swordless Link. I just go through. Oh, I'm gonna go hang out in Hyrule for a while. Just run around, and play with the locals. I would literally do that. So <laughs> just wanted to spend time in Hyrule. Yeah. So it's fair to say that I am a big Zelda fan. So um, that's why it's so strange that your take on Skyward Sword, which, which, if 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 anybody listening has been following other critical reviews around, is is really getting excellent reviews. I mean, you know, touting things like this is the best one since Ocarina of Time. It's better than Ocarina of Time. I mean, getting tens, 
I mean, that which, I mean... It's the reason to pull the Wii out of the It's the closet. reason to pull the Wii, yeah, exactly. I've heard a couple references saying it's the best game within the last decade. Really? Oh, God. Dang. Whoa. Okay, so, I'm really forgiving with Zelda games. Um, when they released Wind Waker, and I'm sure everybody remembers when they first saw the new Link, Kid Link, and the Toon Link, everybody was like, no. I was the one sitting there... Yeah, I'm going to play this game. And it turned out to be a good game, but, you know, a lot of people still have trouble getting over the art style. Yeah. So I was going into Skyward Sword thinking, you know, these reviews, I don't know, but I'm going to give it a shot. So I pre-ordered the special edition because I had to have that damn gold Wiimote. And I will say, that is the best part of this game. Oh, wow. Ouch. Now... It's an awesome Weibo. Everybody's oh, it's so gaudy. It's, no, it is my golden cartridge. This is the one redeeming factor. <laughs> but um, let's just kind of talk about the way that this thing was marketed first. Um, I think this kind of was an important factor that not a lot of people thought about or just full on bought into for the people who actually think this is better than Ocarina of Time. Um, I'm sure everybody's aware that Ocarina of Time was released this past summer, maybe earlier, um, for the 3DS. Right. Amazing! It was great. I mean, I I could go on forever about, you know, how awesome the new version is. The things that they did for that game was just brilliant. I was really pleased with it. But Ocarina of Time, which otherwise would be, you know, pretty much a generation ago was just re-released. It's in everybody's current consciousness. That's yeah. two generations ago at this point. It's just, I mean, two console oh generations ago. Oh my god. Yes. I mean, we're right, we're right up on the cusp of a new generation. They're already talking about the Xbox 720... 720, is that what they're calling it? You're right. And then the PS4. And, and the Wii U. I mean, this yeah, this was this was back in PlayStation oh. 1 time. This was, I mean, that was competing with... Uh, stuff like Crash Bandicoot and stuff back in the day. Yeah. Now, kiddies, way back in the day, our games came on cartridges. <laughs> Not these newfangled discs. But no, the point that I'm making is that, you know, everybody's saying, oh, this is better than Ocarina of Time, and comparing it to, you know, Ocarina of Time. That might have worked if the game that they're referring to wasn't just released the summer before. Yeah. Ocarina of Time, pretty much everybody's sat down and replayed it if they have a 3DS. Everybody's thinking about it. And then for, I think it was the president of Nintendo of America was the one that came out and said, Skyward Sword is better than Ocarina of Time. That was the worst mistake you could possibly make. If you're thinking of Nintendo, you're going to either think of two franchises, Mario or Zelda. There are a few others, but those are the really big ones. At the Miyamoto Dynasty. Exactly. And if you're going to think of Zelda, Ocarina of Time is going to be the one that everybody's going to remember. So to compare a brand new game... <laughs> so, so Chaz is over Chaz here is shaking, his, shaking head, his head. But it's like, it, you can't shoot laser beams with your sword. That's bullshit. If you don't have lasers shooting out of your sword when you have full health, it's not Zelda to me. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think you have to agree that... Um, because of the re-releases, I mean, we're talking about Nintendo 64, GameCube, and the Wii. That's going to be one of the best-known games. Like, that's going to be what hit the wider audience. Um, some of the older-school games, like your Zelda games, because I can't... It, it's Chaz's Zelda games. You know, how many times... What about my Philips CDI Zelda games? We don't, don't talk exist. about that. <laughs> 
I know, everybody's so sad about this. But father! <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, boy! Um, I just wonder what Ganon's up to. How many hours of YouTube is just wasted? <laughs> if, 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 if anybody's curious what we're talking about, in the dark, awful, cobweb-filled recesses of YouTube's asshole is this series of videos where somebody remixed... What was the CDI games? Yeah, which, CDI. Which, the Philips CDI games, which at this point Nintendo was officially like disavowed. Mm-hmm. And it's Nintendo's Area Fifty One. Yeah, exactly. And 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 it's it's awful because it's just terrible gameplay. But then a bunch of fully animated, horribly animated, and fully voiced cutscenes, and they're just so suggestive already that there was it was just easy fodder for someone to go in and just and just make some of the most horrible and funny. Like YouTube poop stuff ever. <laughs> anyway, moving forward. Yeah, um, getting a little off like topic. This is also kind of an indication of how bad the game is. Is that I'm just struggling to find something worthwhile to say about it because I don't want to just say, "Yeah, this game was bad. Don't play it." The end. Right. But um, yeah, so to compare it to Ocarina of Time, when Ocarina of Time was just re-released, was the worst marketing mistake ever. What really bothers me is that people are okay with that comparison, and no, it's it's not accurate, and I think it says a lot about what is expected from games, and you know, currently, which will link in quite nicely with what we're going to be talking about later. Mm-hmm. Um, to get into the meat of the game, basically what happens is Link and Zelda are living in an island in the sky, and Zelda predictably gets kidnapped and Link has to go down to the ground level to save her. So it's a little bit of a deviation from your standard Princess Zelda thing. She's just a regular person. Uh, Link is actually a student at a night academy. That I didn't mind so much. Kind of a deviation from, oh, you're just the chosen one. He is the chosen one. But he's also, in this game, you know, a regular guy that kind of evolves into something else. Mm-hmm. So it's, it actually does the hero story instead of it's just straight chosen. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas like an Ocarina of Time is like, well, he never had a fairy because he's the chosen one. Destiny from the beginning and that sort of thing. Um, the storyline isn't terrible, but it's not enough to save any other aspect of the game. I actually found everything to be really messy and a lot of uh, the gameplay... Just poorly figured out. Well, the, you know, one of the things that I can remember people talking about a lot in, in reviews and saying that this is one of the first times that the Wii Motion Plus was really well realized. And that with the full range and free motion, each and individual battle was unique and different and interesting because of how the kind of freedom you had with your sword, kind of like what you've seen or what we've all seen with uh, the, the PlayStation Move and some of the sword games that they have there with, like, you know, champions and all that sort of stuff, that the really true one-to-one in 3D space movement. Well, uh, it is true that every battle is different. Um, my experience was I never knew when the Wiimote was going to start failing and I was going to have to recalibrate it. Ah. Yeah. When I got the bow and arrow, that's always been my favorite weapon, I was really excited. It's like, yes, the bow and arrow, this is going to be great with Wii Motion Plus. And it is until it loses the sensor range, and then all of a sudden Link is pointing at the ground and spinning around in circles. Watch out! And invariably, that will always happen during a boss battle. <laughs> um, you use the Wiimote for your sword. Uh, you could also use it for drawing your bow and arrow, so you could just kind of simulate the effect. 
If you do it too quickly, you will exit out of drawing the bow and arrow and pull out your sword. That happens with all of the weapons. It drives me up the wall. Mm. Um, but so heavy reliance on the, the motion controls is, again, a crippling point for a game. I think it's really unwise to base so much gameplay on something that can so easily fail. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to do that, it would be really nice if they gave an option for working with a classic controller. That's something that I and found. There's, there's nothing like that. No, really. You you play with the Wii and the Chuck. That's what you do. If they gave the option for using a classic controller, I think that the game would actually appeal to a lot more people. Once again, if did, everybody didn't drink the Kool Aid on this one, there are games like actually I think the first two Resident Evils that were re-released for the Wii were originally designed for using the Moten Chuck, but also gave the option of working with a classic controller. And the greatest thing about that is, if it had just been the Moten Chuck, I would have put the game down. Mm. But the classic controller saved it. If not for the fact that I paid $70 for this, and it was a Zelda game, I would have stopped playing around hour 15. Now, how many hours is this game, typically? It looks like it's between 45 and 60 hours, depending on how quickly you go through. It's That's a long easily game. Easily one of the big, the, like, lengthwise. It's yeah. one of the longest Zelda games. That's definitely true. Mm. But here's the thing about it. It is long because you keep repeating things over and over. So, like, backtracking? Backtracking and just doing missions that really have no point. And I have a perfect example of this. You're going through, and without revealing too much, because obviously, yeah, I don't want to ruin anything. You're going through and collecting items. There's, there are three specific items that you're trying to get. For the third one, it becomes really clear that they wanted to kind of pad out this part of the game because this is actually a turning point before the game transitions over. They thought, oh no, this is the last level. We need to make this last a little bit longer. So you go to this temple. All of a sudden you have to stop the gameplay, go to a previous temple to get something, and have it transported. Um, Once again, trying to kind of be sparing with the details, but... Maybe in this case, it'd just be better to just say what's going on. You go right ahead, you know, if... if, if um, yeah. and Spoiler just, alert. Yeah, spoiler yeah. alert. Spoiler alert, yeah. If, if anybody doesn't want to know anything about the game, you know, story-wise or whatever, go ahead and skip forward a couple of seconds. Yeah. So you have this robot, which is another thing. <laughs> yeah, so you have this robot that does deliveries for you. <laughs> uh, That's awesome. Yeah. So you go to, uh, which, is a, which is essentially the Water Temple... You get a thing of water, just a big old canister of water, and you go to the fire temple. Instead of landing at the front of the fire temple, which you can do, there's a little checkpoint where you could just land in the front. There's a cutscene that prevents you from choosing where you want to land. You land at the base of the mountain that the temple is on, and you have to do... You have to do an escort mission for this robot. Uh, and it's not escort just Escort missions need to die. It's not just a small section. You have to go through the entire level area. So from basically where you start. It's freaking awful. Yeah, all the way to the top. And just like any standard escort mission, the robot can die, malfunction, and you have to restart. From the beginning. Yes. Yeah. <sighs> Might I say one thing? In video games, when I hear that there are escort missions, that usually means that it's a game that I will not be playing. 
Yeah, I, mean, I think my, my general rule, the two things in games that I cannot abide are infinitely respawning enemies and escort missions. Those two things are just the devil. I, I, I kind of have to have to have a different opinion on that because escort missions have been a mainstay of gaming since probably the third, second or third generation. And they it's, it's a way of spicing up the gameplay with uh, something that wasn't really possible in the first couple generations. And it's not like it's, it's an invalid way of, of having something to do. Is it, is it any less valid than going and getting something? It forces you to connect with other characters in the story a little bit more than just, oh, well, I didn't die, I didn't lose any life, I didn't lose any health. Well, it doesn't matter what what happens to everything around me. Right. I mean, I, I think the biggest some of the earliest games were things like Space Invaders, where you're protecting cities. Right. Uh, you could say that that's a sort of I a just stationary think that's a very escort fragile mission. mechanic, and that if it's if it's if it's balanced really well, it can be exciting and challenging. But it's really easy for it to be freaking impossibly infuriating to be dealing with something that's wildly fragile and stupid. And a lot of the problem I find, especially in the modern games. Is really really dumbass AI. That's wow. you know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one thing if like the AI is is intelligent enough to like follow you and not fall off cliffs and not like walk up right in front of like a giant fire breathing monster and tickle his belly. Yeah. You know, no, but Zelda that's the problem with most of the those. I, mean, I don't have a problem with the escort missions as a concept. I have a problem with escort missions as as like they tend to be executed, which is normally with really really dumbass AI. And yes. in this situation, it, it's not. You know, oh, let's add this extra bit of gameplay in. It is clearly to pad the first half of the game. And that's the important part, too. They aren't padding the game towards the end. It's, let's pad this part of the game so the first half lasts. This is only around hour 30. We're not talking near the end of the game. Yeah. So you have to stop your whole level progression to go and do this stupid little mission. The AI is retarded. Literally, I was standing still. The AI went up a little different path, went around an alcove, and started screaming at me because it couldn't see me anymore. I wasn't moving. The damn robot got lost. (laughs) (laughs) And at one point, another problem with the Wiimote is that I find that the controls aren't precise enough. If I try and push Link forward a little bit just so I could see around a corner, he'll be like, oh, you want me to jump off this cliff? (laughs) And guess what the robot does right after I do that? Off the cliff. No, it stays on the path, right into the path of the enemy that begins to attack it immediately. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. So frustrating. And the worst part about this specific situation is that in the fire level, there's actually a little shortcut halfway through where you could take a vent and get up to the temple front. I walk up to that, and the robot's like, oh, no, you have to walk the rest of the way, because that would be too easy. I think it's a good, it's a good point to bring up that if you're going to have a game that's difficult and has uh, very narrow margins for error, like a lot of older games, and a lot of the, the really memorable and great games, you know, just, you know, of all game history... It, you really need to have tight controls. It's got to be polished. Mm-hmm. It's got to be polished, man. If, if, oh, you, yeah. if you can't be relied upon to perform the actions, then it it creates a situation where you, you almost feel like you are 
rolling dice as opposed to accomplishing something. And it sort of takes the victory out of even winning. Yeah. Because it's just like, got lucky that time. It's so true, too. You know, I'm sure it's been a while since anybody else has been playing with the Wii. But if you remember the analog stick on the chuck, it's cheap. It's terrible. And it's basically exactly what it was on the Nintendo 64. I would almost argue is... that the 64's one was better. Yeah, the uh-huh. 64's was strong. The Wii one just crapped out on me all the time. Yeah. I still, I still have working 64 controllers. And... <laughs> oh, yeah. But that's the only way you can control Link. That is how you move him around. And you have to do a lot of precise things. And a lot of it involves jumping from one thing to another or falling down a cliff. That is how I've died more times in this stupid game. It's just trying to grab onto a rope and falling down a fucking cliff. It's so aggravating. Uh, so, 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 really, a big problem with this is controls. Controls are definitely an issue. Uh, Would you say the number one issue? No. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> and actually, moving from the controls, I'd like to bring up some of the more technical stuff that others might not notice right off the bat. But because and this is based on your background yeah. as a professional in the game Martin design world, you see things that others don't. Yeah. The first thing that I noticed, and this was, I'd say, about two minutes into the game. Cool. Link's animation sets. Oh, I thought you were going to say his lips. <laughs> I've really all seen the lips. I, that is actually what bullet is wrong? point on my notes. <laughs> okay, good. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, no, his animation sets are really unacceptable. All you're doing in this game is essentially watching him move around, and for his animation sets to be as bad as they are is really unacceptable. Basically what happens with Link is, you know, his standard thing is running, right? Mm -hmm. He runs like a robot. He doesn't move his wrists. He doesn't move his ankles. Wow. I'm still undecided as to whether or not it's the animations themselves. The person who was animating Link didn't know that wrists and ankles moved. Or if it was the rig. Now, having played with... The, the rig being the skeleton. The skeleton. Right. Yeah. Sorry for the technical terms. No, no. Though I think in you know most instances, people would know what that was. Right. But I've played around with the Twilight Princess models. They were actually um, ripped and released several years ago. Mm. So I know the level of detail that these models can go to. They're... The mesh is designed to be able to move all the proper body parts. You're going to supposed to be able to move the wrist, move the ankles. There's no reason why his animations are so bad. And it's not just walking and running. It's jumping. He doesn't jump freely, so let's not get excited. Link still can't jump. But he runs up walls and then jumps over things like that. Mm-hmm. And they're just really poorly done. Um, which is really disappointing. Another thing that bothers me, we're going to Link's lips, the textures are laughable. Mm. It's obvious that a lot of time was spent on Link's texture, because aside from his inexplicable fancy lips... (laughs) (laughs) That's the best way to describe it. (laughs) I can't think of a polite way to describe his lips. Describe it in polite way. He's got a purdy mouth. He's got a purdy mouth. <laughs> and what's strange is that, you know, Zelda, she looks normal. So it's not just like, oh, that's the art style. Link just inexplicably has a purdy mouth. It's like the designers were like, hmm. You know, a lot of people theorize about Link. We might as well just straight up say, yeah, 
But... So you're saying he's actually got a prettier mouth than Zelda. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Now, I will say that the Zelda model was actually really nice. Mm. Um, not that you see a lot of her, because, you know, she Is gets she... kidnapped almost right away. The environment models... Uh, environment textures, actually, are... I can't understand why they did this, but here's exactly what they did with all of the environment textures in this game. In Photoshop, they painted a texture. Say they were making a tree. Painted tree, bark, leaves, everything's great. And then they put the sparkle filter on it. (laughs) (laughs) And I am not joking. Basically what they did... So they did everything, you know, made it nice and pretty, and then they went to filter, paint dogs, sparkle. They left it at the defaults, and they hit okay. I'm not joking. That is exactly what happened. I know this for a fact, because when we were in school, we had a final project, and we did this with all of our textures. Because we wanted a unified design, and we had so many artists that were inexperienced, they didn't know how to make their textures look the same. They didn't know how to make it look like it was just one person making all of them. Right. We added the sparkle filter to give the impression that, oh yeah, no, we had a unified design this whole time and that was it. I don't want to think that Nintendo did that. That would make me so sad on the inside. I, I just, I don't know. It, it was really disappointing to see that and it's so obvious for anybody who's used Photoshop for even a little while. So is, it, there's a sense, is there a sense that it was rushed? That's the thing. There's so much content elsewhere that I don't think it was necessarily rushed. I think it was just poorly done. And that's... Bad bad priorities. Yeah. And it's so disappointing because you know it's a Nintendo game. There's no way they're working with limited funds. They're known for pushing back games for quality. Right. Well, And and really, they they have a pool of some of the most talented people in games. That's another thing, too. And it's not like they are hitting a boundary that they've never crossed before. The Twilight Princess models were far superior than the Skyward Sword ones. So it's like they regressed. And I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that this game is clearly Twilight Princess meets Wind Waker. Hmm. Uh, There are so many elements in this game that just say that so clearly. And I'm wondering if they were trying to find a way to meet the tune style with the realistic style. And it just didn't work. So, um, that's really unfortunate, but that's what happened. Uh, the final thing that really has driven me up the wall in this game, repeated cutscene animations. Repeated? Repeated. So, like, not just a lot of them, but, like, the same one over and over. Yeah. Hmm. So, the first third of the game, whenever Link goes to the temple, his final destination, his little navi for this game is named Fee. She's a robot? Or something. It's really quite unclear, but it's creepy as hell. A robot fairy? I predict with an 80% probability that you are correct. Yes. Really? It is a robot fairy thing, yes. And she dances! Like little Irish jigs and ballet and scurrying around areas. The first time she did it, I thought, oh, that's kind of creepy, but whatever. The second time she did it, I'm thinking, did the temple look similar enough to be able to pull off this cutscene again? Because that's what they freaking did. The exact same things. Three times in a row. Not acceptable. Mm -hmm. Every time Link goes into a new temple, same animation. They managed to 
mostly changed the backgrounds enough to make it seem like maybe this is the second time through. But how many times is Link gonna approach something, look down a stairway, because there's always a goddamn stairway, and be like, no, I'm gonna be brave, and then walk down? I swear, two of the temples were made exactly the same in the beginning, just so they could reuse that cutscene. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, on a scale of one to five, what would you, uh, what would you rate this? Two and a half Miyamoto's. <laughs> <laughs> there are some threads of the original Zelda spirit in there that you kind of have to, you know, give credit for. There is one temple that was actually fun. So, it, it's still a Zelda game. I can't say, no, don't play this game, because I am really loyal to the brand. But don't buy it new, unless you really want the Wiimote. Um, this is apparently worth it. For me, it was. Um, but this is definitely one where if I wasn't excited about the pre-release stuff, I would have waited until it had been out for a while and the price had dropped, like, maybe two or three levels before actually buying it. Hmm. Or rent it. Gamefly it. There we go. There you go. Okay, or so... Or if you can still find a Blockbuster. There you go. <laughs> so, um, I actually did not play the game because I do not own a Wii. Actually... I, side tangent, I have not owned a Nintendo console since the original Nintendo. Not because I dislike Nintendo, but just because games that I wanted were on other systems. Um, so I have no loyalty brand to Zelda. I haven't actually played Ocarina of Time. I've only seen bits and pieces of Ocarina of Time. Wow. I have seen, I've watched someone play all the way through, um, not Phantom Hourglass. Uh, the Majora's, Majora's Mask. Mask. So I have seen at least that one. I've seen bits and pieces of the Zelda game. So to try and get some sort of prep on this, what did I do? Well, while I was working on my second monitor, I watched a playthrough on YouTube. On so four. Brian like went and got the cliff notes? <laughs> I went and got the cliff notes, basically. Well, it's the whole game, but, well, I didn't actually finish the whole watching the whole game. I got to... I think the Dark Forest Temple, where he meets some bad guy, and that's as far as I got. Super specific. Yeah. It repeats a lot. You really didn't describe very well what you saw. <laughs> I'm also pretty impressed by your credibility, I gotta say. <laughs> well, hey, yeah. Nah, You've uh, clearly done your research. I've clearly done my research. <laughs> uh, I do have to say, though, that I was really impressed with how fast, as far as story went, early on, uh, with Link and the fact that you had said that he's kind of not the chosen one. The way that I saw it, yeah, he was the chosen one. They kind of say that uh, when he does the King Arthur sword in the stone. Thing. Well, yeah, there's always going to be the element of, you know, he is, he is the Link. guy of destiny. But the he, guy. <laughs> <laughs> some dude who's got a plan. No, um, of course there's always going to be that element, but he had more normal beginnings in this one? Yes, that's true. It, it is normal. I really like the fact that Link and Zelda were actually like childhood friends instead of... He this just isn't the made... first time that happened, though. It isn't? No. Okay. So, it's the first time that I noticed it. Uh, and then, uh, I actually liked the pacing very, very, very early on until Zelda gets kidnapped, and then it kind of got dull real quickly for me. But, uh, you are... One thing that you did say about Link and his... Uh, model and his purdy lips is that one thing that I noticed is that he looked very out of place in the game. Did you get that sense of feeling like he looked like he was almost 
So his, his character model, model was to match the others. Yeah, it felt like his character model was ripped from uh, Twilight Princess in some ways, and everybody else was working on a completely different character model. To me, that's what it looked like. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that. Um, Link definitely has a feel that you know, everybody expects Link to look a certain way in these games, but it seems that in every Zelda game, they try and add a different element to the townsfolk or the floating rock folk, and he didn't really match what was going on in his hometown. Yes. Uh, There were also a lot of characters that themselves looked just out of place. There's one character in the bazaar that looks like it's ripped from an American cartoon, like Ren and Stippy style. Really? Yeah, it it just struck me as, wow, this is really, really out of place. And so, yeah, from that standpoint, Link kind of looks singular in his surroundings in the beginning. Yeah, it it just felt that way. Um, okay, so where I got here is another way of knowing. You have to find these, like, kiki things that are hiding. Oh, yes. <laughs> there was something repetitive about that, and dowsing and trying to find people. Guess um, what you do for the rest of the game. I'm guessing finding more people and dowsing? Yeah. So, <laughs> dowsing, if you're not aware, I believe it's... It comes from the term when people are like in the desert taking a couple yeah, looking, of sticks yeah. looking for water. They do that with the sword. So you actually point the sword and you're looking so for this thing. So basically he just grabs a hold of the sword and just follows his sword? No, it goes into like a first person view with like um, a sound, like a homing detecting sound where if oh, you're so like, going like, the wrong like, direction. I'm getting a raging clue right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 That's what is your clue pointing. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it, it, it seemed really, really cheesy, shall we say. Mm. So you're uh, saying Link with his pretty mouth and his was, raging clues. Was, and his raging clues. <laughs> he was following his sword. Yes, yes. Just as a quick aside from that, since Link's sword arm is completely controlled by the Wii Motion uh, Wiimote, yeah, if you're running around with your sword out and if you're not careful about the position of the Wiimote, yeah, it yeah. looks like he's running around with a... Mm, raging a, sword. Yeah. <laughs> I actually made a point of not running around with my sword because it just looks so awkward. <laughs> yeah, and you're talking. You were talking earlier about the fact of that you had to adjust the uh, Wii motion sensors constantly. In this uh, gameplay, where I didn't get very far in watching it, the person who was playing it had to adjust it at least three times that I could remember. Um, so that's really not a good sign. Also, you were saying earlier about. How you wish that they had the uh, the chance to go back to the classic console controls. The reason I don't think they did that was because the two things that you had said were Twilight Princess and the Resident Evil games. Those were really ports of GameCube games. That's true. So when you're thinking of it that way, it's really easy to just go back if it's just a port and then it's like, oh yeah, just switch these controls. I think they went away from that because it, this time it really wasn't a port. That's That's definitely fair to say, but... It's not hard to have multiple control setups. That is true. So I don't really think that's an excuse to just put that as the main goal. It's like, yeah, you could play this with the Wii Motion Plus. It's great. But if you prefer, yeah, you could play it with the classic controller. So That is a good point. So we're going to take a little break and uh, give you guys a new track from AirPlus Recordings. Again, as always, music is provided by AirPlus Recordings. Today's song is Where's My Glow Stick by DFSA90. This uh, this is a little boy genius. 
Uh, Tigerpaw is the artist who actually runs AirPlus Recordings, and he sent me this email, and it's just really blown away by this kid. He's got a lot of talent, especially for his age, and he really feels like he's going places. So, again, the uh, track today is Where's My Glow Stick by DFSA90. His uh, songs can be found at soundcloud.com forward slash DFSA90, dubstep production. Make sure to check out the uh, tracks tab so to see more of his songs. The first tab is just his, uh, is like a compilation that he made, but there's a lot more songs available in the tracks tab. So, yeah, so I hope you enjoy it. Welcome back. Again, that was DFSA90 with Where's My Glow Stick. You can find his work on soundcloud.com forward slash DFSA90 dubstep production. Again, try and click on the tracks tab to see more of his songs than just what's available on that first page. Uh, thanks again for AirPlus Recordings. To uh, Thanks again to AirPlus Recordings for sharing um, all this wonderful music with us. Really, I think, elevates the podcast and we just have a good time with it. Uh, you want to see more of AirPlus Recordings music, go to soundcloud.com forward slash AirPlus Recordings. Lots of good stuff there. I believe there's nine plus artists under the label now. So it's really growing. It's a very good thing. Thanks again. Our next subject is titled, Where Have All the Good Games Gone? And it's basically a weigh-in on kind of the state of games currently. And a lot of us here have been gaming ever since we were little. I've seen most of the generations of consoles. Uh, I think that the only thing I didn't really actively play on was like the Commodore at the time. 
you know, and I probably put in a good maybe 20 hours in Commodore at school at one point, but, I mean, over the years, but really, like, not a home console for me. You know, so, I mean, really, we've, we've been around, a lot, of, a lot of us for a long time have uh, really kind of seen the growing trends and changes and would like to, you know, weigh in on where things are now and how we feel things have changed. I don't um, think you were really missing much with the Commodore. It was all about the Apple IIe. I <laughs> Dude, no, the Commodore, the Commodore had this incredible game. Atari. Atari. Of the Atari. <laughs> well, the yeah. Atari, yes. I actually got to play the infamous E.T. Atari game. But really? Yes, I, I was did. just watching the Code Monkeys episode the other day. <laughs> you guys yes. realize that there's an entire generation of kids just sitting there? What are they talking yeah. about? Yeah, watch yeah, exactly. Code Monkeys, learn yourself up some goodness. Okay, so we're going to just go around and give our kind of opinions in general, and then we're each going to try and pick a game that we feel really personifies, in our opinion, the problem with gaming these days, the biggest problem that gaming is facing, and then pick a a title that we really feel is still sort of one of the last bastions of good gaming, that still harkens back to what used to make gaming so great and really demonstrates what gaming as a medium you know, has to offer. All the good games gone. So let's go around and see what each of us have to say. Let's start with Chess. Well, I think that the uh, I think the uh, the big thing that is plaguing the the games industry these days is the fact that so many games seem to have almost almost crippling amounts of bugs. <laughs> they 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 will Very shut you down point, when you are just starting to get immersed in a story when you're just starting to feel like whether or not you succeed in this particular section or at this particular task right when you right when you're on the cusp of of actually enjoying the game all of a sudden everything stops and nothing's moving and and you feel like throwing your controller through the TV well i've really started to stop moves. buying games at release you know, it really feels oh, yeah. like you just wait. A but the patches, but the patches don't even fix all the problems. True. Yeah, they yeah. patch and and fix and update over and, and over. Sometimes the patches over. will actually cause new problems. Yes, right. I, I well, remember I mean, Skyrim dragons flying backwards after the first patch. <laughs> well, no, a good example of what you're talking about. Again, Skyrim is on the PlayStation Three in particular because Skyrim is a multi-platform game. They were having problems with the game save files getting too big and causing severe frame rate problems. And so basically the longer you play and the more things that the game saves, because Skyrim's, you know, if, if any of the listeners aren't familiar with the uh, Bethesda games, the open world games, there's lots of random crap uh, that you can or can't have and pick up and drop and move around and, you know, containers and stuff. And so there's a lot for the, for the game save to save. And so like, like back in Fallout 3 time, the game saves get huge. And so there was some kind of a problem with the game saves with the Skyrim that deep enough in, as they get larger, it would cause a problem with the frame rate to be really severely bad. I mean, we're talking like well below 30. You know, to the point, unplayable. I mean, I've seen video of it. And, and not everybody's having this problem, but it's... It's, it's a, after it gets over 10 megabytes, this would start to happen. Yeah. And it gets worse and worse. Yeah, it's I mean, in Skyrim, is easily to see everything, or not see everything, but to really, like, dig in and go through and have a big game, I mean, a good time through, it's about, you know, a good 60 to 100-hour game. And this is happening commonly 20, 30 hours in. So this is just what you're talking about. You're really digging in and getting into the meat of the game, and then it just breaks. And, and part of the reason for a lot of these bugs... And you, you, I, I'm not going to say that the, the game developers are getting lazy, 
because it's, I mean, it's it's a huge industry, and there's a lot of people working really hard on these things. Bigger I mean, they really, they really are. Yeah, it's bigger than Hollywood. It's bigger than the music industry. It's enormous, and they're 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 trying really hard to produce a good product. But the real problem comes in that they're building these things that are so large, and they have so many people working on it that it's a it's a management nightmare to make sure it all fits together. It's like it's like a jigsaw puzzle with, you know, a million pieces. It's just it's really it's a monumental task. And the other problem is to save time, they're oftentimes going to use pre-built pieces of code, uh, usually referred to as engines, and to, to take care of things that are commonly used, like physics or. Graphics. Graphics, things like that. And commonly like known 30, as middleware is the term that middleware. they Yeah, those like those like thirty logos you watch as you turn on the game, it's like, oh using this, using that, using this, yes. using that. Most common in this generation, the Unreal Engine and the Havoc physics engine. Mm-hmm. And, and the problem with these these engines is a lot of them come with bugs right from the beginning. Really? Yeah. Yes. You can't you as a as a developer, if you're using middleware, you're saving a lot of money because you're not developing all this stuff from scratch. But you're going to have to basically work your code around these huge problems that come with the software. And would you say that they're bloated? Uh, well the, all you have to do is look at the si- the file size for any modern game on a on a computer or look at the fact that the PlayStation 3 is using Blu-ray discs which have between 25 and 50 gigabytes of space on the disc you'd see that the games are I mean the co- the code alone is just like enormous um, you compare that with games of yesteryear they fit on cartridges that held like you know less than a meg yeah mm. And one thing that does happen a lot with the engines, you know, just since, you know, I work with them a lot, is there's things called legacy bugs. What's really common uh, is to take, you know, the engine that you're working on, for example, I work a lot with UDK, so they build it off of the previous engine and just kind of pile stuff on top, not bothering to clean out the issues from what happened previously. So you're dealing with really old code and new code and just stacks up and gets Horribly messy, and just also, a rat's nest. Yeah, yeah. And from from a, a programming perspective, if you wind up with you know, which is millions, which is Chaz's field of specialty, by the way. It, when you've got millions and millions of lines of code, I mean, it, it you know you can you can use tools to make these things a little easier to deal with things like you know source and version control and things like that. But it it really it becomes it becomes a job in itself just to make sure that things don't collapse on themselves. It's it it it's almost impossible. And with beta testers, um, you'd be with programming. You'd, you'd be, be surprised. You mean the general public? Well, nowadays, it's the general public. <laughs> but you'd be surprised at how many times in uh, you'd like get well in my term in my field it's called a ticket um, for the developers and they will just respond back with could not reproduce the error yes Uh, that that is you'd be surprised just shockingly amount at how many uh, like responses to bug reports are we cannot reproduce the error Mm -hmm. sometimes Mm -hmm. though that is on the fault of the tester itself by not clearly defining what it was wrong. I mean, I, right. you sometimes have, this was broken. Great. Can you define this and broken? Um, 
So, uh, so there is a lot of that. Also, I know that before the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360 came out at the Game Developers Conference, I believe it was Sony that was talking about in the potential future of gaming to cut down on cost of games to save the production, uh, you know, the producing company's money, and also to produce games faster, they would actually cut out most of the beta testing in general. And there would literally be a bug report system built into the console. Automated. Automated. Kind of like Windows, only more where you could, where, you know, if there's a problem, you can send that Windows error report. Uh, Only you could actually write in notes. That's what they were talking about. There was a lot of people up in arms about that. It didn't happen. Who knows? It may happen in the next generation just to cut down on costs. Yeah, um, kind of building off of that, one of my first jobs was working at EA as a tester. And this was several years ago at this point. But around the time that I was working there, there was a lot of uproar because EA was talking about sending all of their testing over to China. Wow. And you know, outsourcing is a major issue in the industry. But... Kind of step back. In addition to just testing for bugs, they were sending, uh, they were sending things like checking for spelling errors, and you know, to China. <laughs> so, wow, you know, a lot so of send work. it to China for localization for the U.S. This is the best way, and that's what they're doing. There, a lot of work actually goes into testing. Uh, it tends to be one of those things where people are like, oh yeah, you're a tester, you don't do anything. Testers are what's in between. The work done at you know the development stage and the public, you know, it's one of those unsung hero things. It's like don't make fun of the people who are making your food, because horrible things can happen. <laughs> <laughs> so another thing that I that I was noticing is kind of a, a big complaint of people, you know, people have about the games industry is they feel like all of the good games for real gamers are gone and that casual games have totally taken over and I felt that way for a long time I was really mad at the Wii I felt like it was very gimmicky and it kind of it abandoned those of us who had been playing games since you know what 1989 1980 1970 something Nintendo's celebrating its 25th anniversary this year so um, last year I'm sorry it's 2012 now And, and I, I did a little bit of research, and I actually I feel better about it now, because if you actually look at the sales figures, uh, excluding the current recession, um, you, you, it paints a pretty clear picture that the casual games are actually on top of the traditional games. Yeah, well, when you say, when we were saying earlier that it's a bigger industry than movies and, and oh. you know, music... It, it's not the games that gamers play. It's not the console games. It's not the hardcore games. It's not that. It's the casual games. Yeah, That's what made that happen. Well, no, even the console games are actually... The, the, the casual games on consoles are selling incredible amounts. And the, it's not that they're taking sales away from... The oh, no, I'm traditional saying that's games. what's making they're, it so big. A big part of it is the casual yeah, gaming world. It is. Um, they're act- if you look at the growth between 2000 and 2008, almost all of the growth in the industry is games for the Wii. It's pretty incredible to look at. They, they're well, sale figures. The Wii crushes the competition. Just crushes yeah. it. So you know, and this is for software and really, if you, even if you look at hardware, it's it's remarkable as well. 
Um, so I'm not as worried about it. The 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 games for people like us, you know, hardcore gamers, traditional gamers, they're not going away. They're just part. They're the same sized slice of an ever growing pie. And so we basically need to just focus on what's good for us. That's sort of the conclusion I've come to. Right. Well, the one thing that I want to say about that is that the problem with the casual gaming is that it's starting to bleed over into the more serious games. I agree. For example, on the newest, on the last two Forza games, the racing simulator game, you can actually turn on controls that basically all you have to do is steer the car. It will brake for you. It will gas for you. Yep. It will change gears. Everything. Yeah. All you have to do is steer. Uh, so there is a bleeding over, and you can turn that stuff off. Um, and, so it's like so it's kind of like the control scheme is the reverse of the old uh, the old slot cars. Yeah, <laughs> and I it's so I see that bleeding over uh, and into a lot of other games where. It has a really good experience, a good story, but there's just no difficulty. Well, there's in huge amounts of hand holding. I don't quick think quick time events. Quick time events. Well, yeah, but, but I, I think a, a good example of all that is the heavy, heavy amount of in-game tutorials. I, I can remember I would get a game, and then on the way home, like as a kid, on the way home while Dad's driving me home, I'll crack it open, look at it pull open the manual, and read the damn manual, because you needed to. You get into the game, something attacks you, and you need to dodge, and you look at the controller, the controller's not going to pop up and be like, by the way, you need to press left and B. It, but nowadays, on the screen, it's like, by the way, you need to press left and B. It just reminds me of that Staples commercial, that, Bing, that was easy. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> or Clippy, the Microsoft. Oh, uh, <laughs> I see you're trying to play a game, and you're all thumbs. <laughs> well... Uh, one thing, though, is I remember seeing this comic of, like, if Super Mario Brothers, the original, was made in today, like, they actually had a cloud that was going by that was saying, if you need to move forward, press the uh, the right uh, on the D-pad. If you want to jump, press this. Remember, you want to jump over these guys or on these guys instead of running into them. That will kill you. You can break blocks when you break. So it had that whole thing. But the way that I see it nowadays is, okay, back then, yeah, you didn't. Because, well, you had a couple of controllers, or you had, you know, start, select, left, your directional buttons in A and B. And nowadays, you have multiple different control schemes that you can switch between for various types of gaming. And so, I think some of those things are nice and needed, plus... In this day and age, you know, it's considered a bad thing in the video game industry. The previously owned games, sometimes you don't get the manual, or rentals, sometimes they don't come with the manual anymore. Yeah, so, I don't think it's a terrible thing that they do a lot of in-game tutorials. I think it's just very telling that people expect to be able to plug it in and be led through a game. But it totally breaks the fourth wall. You know, you've walked up to a Roman legionary... Press up on your controller to tell me what oh, you yeah, want to sell. Especially when they have a voice. The voice. It's like, yeah. it's like, thank you. We're having serious problems in the city. Thieves and terrible people everywhere. We really need a hero like you. Press B to make sure that you. It's like, what? <laughs> I, I remember um, a great, great game for the Xbox Three Six or the Xbox and the PlayStation Two called A Bard's Tale, where it's actually a long-standing series that goes back to the computer. And this guy is trying to explain to him how the game works, like what buttons to press. He's like, you remind me of some person I once knew. Kept saying something about clicking on this little rat or a mouse or something. I have no idea what you guys are talking about. (laughs)
Well, you know, kind of piggybacking on what Chaz was talking about, I, again, agree that there is a serious problem with game difficulty being adjusted low and lower and lower and lower. I, you know, I, I, I know, you know some of the young kids that I know that are interested in gaming, you know, I'll be, I'll be over visiting with them and they'll get to a difficult part in the game and they'll come and ask me to do it for them. Yeah. And it's like, it's like it's breeding this strange culture of just like these silly little online casual flash games that is for, that are free, you know, like, uh, not Toonami, the, uh, Cartoon Network. Cartoon Adult Network Swim. does stuff. Adult Swim does stuff. You know, and yeah, some of them are challenging, but a lot of it's just the silly little throwaway games that are fun, sure, but they're just time killers. And a lot of them don't really have any real high difficulty level. And I think one of the things that gaming has to offer us that really no other medium can, you know, outside of storytelling and, you know, really legitimately telling a story for a longer period of time and having the flexibility to really get you physically, I mean, like, really invested in the characters. But it has the ability to make it genuinely riveting and exciting. You know, raise your heart rate because... And then you you have something to do with whether or not you win or lose. There were actually studies done uh, where it was revealed that... Things that happen in the video, in a video game environment reacts the same way within your brain as if you were actually doing them. So, if you're jumping over a cliff and just barely making it by your fingernails, your brain is processing it the same way as if you were actually doing that. Right, the sense of accomplishment that you can have in video games is one of the things that video games, I feel, has to offer that other mediums do not. That this a unique thing that the video games can can give to the the viewer or the the player that nothing nothing else does that you know that you are actually invested you are actually you know personally in control of and responsible for the life or death of the character the story the whatever you know and it's it's something that I think we're really missing out on a lot these days because things are getting easier. Recently, Dustin and I have been playing uh, Dark Souls, you know, and, and people are coming in, they're touting it, oh, it's so hard, and it's du- super difficult, prepare to die, rah, rah, rah. You know, their whole ad campaign is about it being tough, and it being hardcore, and all that sort of stuff, and it's like, yeah, no, it's just the way games always work. Yeah. It's like you actually feel great when you win. You feel crushed and op- oppressed when you lose. You have to go in, and you're fighting odds that are way beyond you, and you actually have to develop a skill set to defeat them. And so you feel a sense of accomplishment. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not interested in getting into, you know, well, feeling a sense of accomplishment from games is ridiculous or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you should be but accomplishing yeah, things. If you spend that much time on something, you might as well enjoy it, right? Right, it shouldn't just be some mind-numbing time dump, like casual gaming. It should, it should be riveting, exciting, heart rate up and down, a story that makes you feel something, you know, feel invested in the characters. Give yourself a challenge, I mean, like, have a challenge that's, that's, that's so hard and insurmountable that you throw the controller down in frustration and come back to it tomorrow with renewed vigor to, de- to defeat it. And then when you win, a game that a game like Dark Souls, there's Dust- Dustin can attest, we're both playing it in the living room together. When I'll, I'll be fighting against something, get crushed a bunch of times, and then when I finally win, I physically stand up and dance around and I'm so excited and start yelling and screaming because it's that much just like joy and adulation to, be, to winning. It could, like, winning means something when it's hard to win. And that is something that gaming in general is missing. That's kind of my, my basic understanding and view of, like, the problem with gaming these days. Some of those things, though, I have to w- relate them to the changing in culture of both the video games themselves 
and the generation of people that are growing up now where it's much more entitlement generation, you know? And it's like, hey, it doesn't matter if you lose in the basketball tournament. You get a trophy for participating, you know, when you're playing sports. I, we're forcibly moving out of that. We have to forcibly move out of it. Like, I mean, yeah. the upper middle class, is, has, the bottom is falling out of it. That sense, and I don't want to get political because that's yeah. not what this is, but just, just a real quick kind of comparison. Like you're talking about culturally and psychologically as a, as a culture – you know, there's this sense of well, entitlement, push button, easy. Yeah. You know, I cook. You know, kids grow up using Facebook and you know, you know, cooking things with the press of a button. I can remember when we got our first microwave. You know, and I mean, it was like, wow, that's really cool. From the convenience is something that is just expected nowadays. Yeah. You know? And and I really think that part of what's going on nowadays, you know, politically and economically, is is for forcing us to be like. Oh shit! Maybe we don't just deserve to have everything. Maybe we actually have to work for it. I mean, then yes, there's things in the system that are jerked up and, screw- and jerking us all around. Sure, but but at the end of the day, as it is right now, we're having to put out a great deal more effort to get a much simpler lifestyle than we ever did before. And we're starting to like that that kind of ease of lifestyle has fallen off the bottom of our of the country. I think. And also, uh, one of the other things, though, was the change of culture in video games itself. Remember, a lot of these older games that we're talking about that were harder were ports of arcade games to home consoles. Mm -hmm. Super Mario Brothers. Contra games that are meant to to just games that are meant to pump you for coins. Do you if if you've ever played the um, '90s? X-Men game, which is now on Xbox Live. Well, now it's a great game. Now all you have to do is press start to continue. But back then, it's like, you want to beat the game? You better have 25 bucks worth of quarters on you. Either that or be really amazing. Yeah, or be... Well, even, like, I mean, the boss fights were made that you couldn't use your... You couldn't beat them unless you use your powers, and your powers killed your life. So, uh, you had those sorts of things. So, I mean... That's, That's one true. of those problems. We're moving away from arcades. We're, we're moving away. We've been moving away for a long time. Mm-hmm. But a lot of games were built on that sort of arcade coin op system. And a lot of development was based around that mindset. And it made it even harder on the early consoles because you didn't have the memory to do stuff like unlimited continues that you do nowadays. So what was it? Mario, you got three continues. Uh, Contra, three continues. I mean, there was the infamous 30 life code. Um, but uh, I don't know if it's infamous or just famous. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's just one of those things where that was... Games were harder because they were meant to pump you for more money and they were just ports of video games now. You know, we complain about, oh, this was just a port of this game onto PSP, you know. So uh, so that's what these, these were, were right, arcade but, ports but, but, but regardless of regardless of the reason why the games originally were created that way, maybe it was just greed from the companies trying to make money with the arcades, but the culture it created that we all fell in love with and grew up in is difficulty, challenge, and reward. Mm-hmm. Those are, in my feeling, are hallmarks of gaming. And the more that we move into the easier, casual gaming, buy your way to fun, you know, hand-holding sort of stuff, you, you start to lose on the culture, regardless of why or where it came from, but the culture that was created in the face, I mean, in in that that early those early gaming days, you know, I mean, yeah, sure, there there it was an arcade thing, fine, but I really think that a big part of what kept us going and what keeps you interested is that no, I'm not going to let the boss beat me. I'm going to come back and win. 
You know, no, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep pushing. You know, the, and it's like, I mean, on a very basic level for, for kids, because, you know, gaming a lot of the time is in the younger, younger audience. But it's, it's an early opportunity to, rec- to recognize that effort equals outcome, yeah. that time spent means skill built, you know, that you actually can accomplish something if you put, if you put your shoulder in and work hard. You know, the games nowadays that are, just, I mean, that's the, it's back to my original, converse, I mean, my original observation about some of the kids that I know. You know, they've grown up in this easy gaming world where everybody's playing simple casual games and all that. And then they, you know, I bought for them or I suggested to their father to get the Sly Cooper game, the Sly Cooper uh, trilogy. And it comes from an era where it, stuff is hard. You know, it's, it, obviously it's not a super hard game. It's, you know, Cooper. But, but it's definitely much more difficult than Wii Sports or something, which is sort of what they grew up doing. And so, you know, they come to that, and they're coming to me, oh, I can't beat this boss, and it's so hard, blah, 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 blah. And I almost felt like I was, you know, in, you know, an ambassador ushering them into, like, what real gaming is all about. And, like, sitting down and refusing to help them, but give suggestions and watch and try and keep them patient. Because, you know, and eventually they got through it, and, and the level of excitement they had and, and pride for defeating those games is way different than the just mind-numbing highway hypnosis just zombification of just the stupid internet games that are available. So, mm-hmm. anyway, that, that's where I'm coming from. And, you know, don't you guys still, when you just hear it, get kind of a swell of victory when you hear the uh, Final Fantasy victory song? <laughs> yes! Yes. <laughs> just disembodied anywhere you hear, da 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 you're like, yeah! <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. One of my friends has that whenever he does something great. <laughs> Plays that on his phone. <laughs> well, who else would like to weigh in on, on the situation of gaming? Well, I think a lot of what we're talking about has to do with the end result of the game industry, which unfortunately is more focused on making money nowadays. Well, it's, a, it's a business. It is a business. I think it's always been focused on making money. Like a, Whether you know, by quarter, quarter or by yeah. $50 pop. That's fair, but there was perhaps shorter than I like to believe. There was a time when there was some level of creativity that went into the games, mm-hmm. and it was more focused on, you know, let's make this awesome game that everybody's going to love. And now, you know, especially with, like, the level of difficulty, it's let's make this game that everybody's going to have to pay more money into. And it's a sad fact, but that's what they're considering now. Mm-hmm. And it's... I need to make this clear. It is not the developers that are doing that. Nope. Are the people. It's the people who are supplying them with the money. It's the producers. It's all of the you know business people saying, "Look, yeah, you've got a great idea. That's probably kind of cool, but we should actually make a sequel of this last game because this made a whole lot more money." Yeah, our test groups and sequel and, and statistics show that we'll make more money this way. And yeah. that's the core of it. That's why there are so many more sequel games than actually brand new IPs because that may not be where the money is. God forbid there be a risk. I know, they're just chasing their tails. I think the, the first, like, I mean, I'm sure there's more than this, but the first, like, really new-ish IP that Nintendo's come out with, and I think they're the biggest offender with repeating games. Oh, God, so, yeah. But the first new IP that they're coming out with in a long time isn't even a new IP. It's uh, Kid Icarus. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the first time we'll ever have seen them on the, anything near the current generation of consoles, and so fine, it'll be a very different game than it originally was, but it's still something they already made up. It's still, I mean, ugh. Yeah, and they know it's going to be successful because, you know, look at what happened when it was announced. Everybody who knew who Kid Icarus was like, 
oh, I remember that game. I'm definitely going to buy that. And that's why they're doing it. That's it's like the it's game like that is, a lot of people have wanted the sequel for. Well, so it's like the game, gaming is built on nostalgia these days, is what it feels like. Uh, yeah, In some ways. Yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of negativ- negativity associated with, you know, the big part of the game industry. But I think there's something really positive that's coming from that, and that's indie gaming. Because that's opened up such a big part of the industry. You know, people are wanting, oh, I want this game with creativity. I want to have, like, a really compelling storyline. I want, you know, this or that. Where the big game companies are going to be like, well, we're not going to risk that. We may not make money off that. The indie companies are saying, well, but we want to be known for good games. Forget it. We have a low overhead. Let's just do it. Right, and channels like the PlayStation Network, Xbox Live, Steam, Dashura, all that sort of stuff, they're making it much more, much easy, much easier and more readily available to produce and put your stuff out and have access to lots of people. You know, or like Minecraft, which is wildly popular and famous now, they created a whole new business model. I don't know, they're the first people, but first one that I've ever heard of, a whole new business model of, of alpha funding. And, you know, you buy in at the alpha stage, you get to do beta tests and stuff like that and being on the community early on and feel like you're helping out, and it gives them more funding to make the game even better. And I think that's great. I, I really honestly believe we are on the cusp of a gaming renaissance, mm-hmm. and it's going agree. to be the indies, uh, indie groups that are leading it. Eventually, the bigger companies are going to follow suit, they're going to start taking more risks, and ultimately, I think the gamers are going to be rewarded for it. And it's going to be great after, you know, this... God, how long has it been? Ten years of just lackluster, repeated, re-released, re-boxed crap? Yeah, you pretty much have to go into the independent gaming world to get anything that's really new. And frankly, I think that with the state of technology as it is now, it's a lot easier to just make your own stuff. It's it a is. Game yeah. developer. And I think that we'll see that this movement of going towards sort of the... Breaking away from the huge budget, like megacorps doing all of our all of our media, including movies, I would say. I think you're going to find in the next few years that most of that is going to kind of disintegrate. And I think that's going to be great. And absolutely, it's so cheap now. I mean, just with what I do at home, I have three or four programs that you know I use on a regular basis, and with just those simple things that I paid for out of pocket, something that an individual can pay for. You can make a game from UDK. If you release it, it's like ten thousand dollars straight out, and then like a percentage licensing fee. And yeah, it's kind of crappy, but the point of the matter is, is that ten thousand dollars is something reasonable to get out if you're trying to publish a game. Mm-hmm. We're not yes. talking about millions of dollars. That is, you know, it's within the realm of possibility for just like five you know, startup people. companies yes. to genuinely make a game that's good and unique, and then come to places like Steam and Jashura, put it out, and people will see it and sell. Another a, a totally amazing indie game recently was uh, Terraria, yeah. which a lot of people kind of thought was a Minecraft rip and you know whatever. But it's it was brilliant, mm-hmm. really cool. Kind of came out totally out of left field and exploded. It was wildly popular. Very simple, totally old school sprite graphics. I mean, very very simple, but just brilliant and great. And it, and because of the forums that are available now, and like what Biggs was talking about with the. Uh, with the shift in it becoming easier for people to, to produce things at a higher level, uh, independent-wise, it's just another example of, of how powerful and popular... Or, or like we, uh, the administrator introduced me to the uh, Marble Hornets series on YouTube. I mean, that's just 
Handycam sort of stuff, and, and it's pretty. I mean, couldn't it cost that much to do? And and it's 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 totally wild and off the wall, and it's great. It's and, totally entertaining. We spent an entire evening watching all of them. It was great. And with the state of you know these digital SLR cameras now, where you're getting uh, like Darren Aronofsky filming freaking Black Swan with you know just a handheld Canon DSLR camera you can get from what any electronics store, right? Mm-hmm. Well, also uh, I remember it was either. The Korean director who made uh, Old Boy, or it was the Japanese director Takahashi Miike. One of the two of them, I can't remember, but he made an entire movie where it was shot and edited on his iPhone. That is the only camera and editing software he used was his iPhone, and that's a big. Those are, I, I, like that's I said, nice. I can't remember which guy it was, but both of them are. Big time directors. Well, I mean, both are great. Yeah. We re- really, I personally would highly recommend checking out Asian Asian cinema, especially if you're not if you're not if you don't shy away from kind of like intense sort of movies, especially the Korean movies. But there's some very very good, albeit often very violent and twisted, but really <laughs> really. Great. But I mean, just the craftsmanship in some of the Korean movies are it's incredible. Like, I mean, I, I don't know if I mentioned it on a podcast before, but I recently saw. Uh, I saw the devil, and it was amazing. Or old boy, or I mean, all this is so. Or thirst. I mean, it's just some. I mean, disturbing, twisted, crazy, but man, really well, brilliantly really done. Yeah. Sure. So, and this is Biggs again, just to kind of reintroduce myself. And I want to talk about one. This may not be the the biggest problem going in gamings, and, and honestly, might end up being kind of like a necessary evil as we move forward. But it's the issue of microtransactions, and I want to focus on this kind of from the perspective of both what Steam is doing through some of their Valve games, most notably TF2, as well of as well as a lot of the MMOs, um, most notably kind of the free to play games as well as now WoW has kind of introduced sort of, you know, microtransactions for mounts, which is kind of an interesting direction to go in. Mostly because I see those types of games as being kind of games that already exist with kind of the diabolical plot of sneaking in microtransactions as opposed to Facebook games, which are basically microtransactions that they're sneaking games into. So, and... The way I want to introduce this, of course, is to give a little bit, <laughs> bit of background on myself, is I'm... I'm a social studies teacher, so I'm going to drop some economics on you, and that's just how it's going to be. And there's the issue of consumer supply is what I want to talk about. And that theory is the idea that consumer supply is the difference between what a person would pay for something and what they do pay for something. So, for example, to give you kind of a personal gaming experience, when I bought Portal 2, because I'm a huge Valve fanboy, I paid the money for it. Because I loved the original Portal. Like, that's why I bought it. Um, it just happens to come with multiplayer that's brilliant and I absolutely love and is has actually been really, really great for me trying to introduce my girlfriend to games. But I basically got that for free. Like, what I paid for Portal 2, I would have been happy just the single player, but the additional value of the multiplayer, I would have easily paid more money for. And the difference between that is what is, what is uh, consumer supply. So, what we have now is we have gaming companies that are introducing this idea of microtransactions in order to kind of get in and access that consumer supply and make it so that there isn't this huge difference between what people perceive they're getting from games versus what they're paying. And so, what you end up getting is kind of this this idea that 
the game companies are seeing that that people are appreciating their games in a certain way and are trying to want to make as much money as as they can get, as you know we were talking about with the coin operated kind right. of stuff, which is a fine marketing idea. But the thing that they're forgetting is for a lot of people including myself, I love Valve games. If I'm playing a game, part of this consumer supply is what I love about a game. I feel that I'm paying something and then this extra value that I'm getting is part of what I love about it. And that's what makes me go to my friends and say, hey, this game is awesome, you should buy it. Or it makes me say, like I'm saying right now, wow, Valve is awesome, you should check Valve stuff out. So if you're taking value away, then that's going to decrease sort of the notoriety that gaming companies are getting from people and kind of decrease brand loyalty, which I think is going to be really, really important, mm-hmm. especially as the indie games become more prevalent. Um, as well as, you know, you're just, you're also getting a little bit less for, for your time and money, simply because now you're playing this game, particularly with MMOs, where it's supposed to be free, and yeah, you know, everything's free and great, but everything you do, they're wanting you, they're wanting you to pay the money. So you go in and they're like, oh, hey, we have this great marriage system and it's awesome to get all these benefits. Oh, you both have to pay 20 bucks for this ring that you can, that you need in order to do that. Or, oh, there's this great quest and, you know, in order to go on the quest and level at the regular rate that everyone else is, then you need to make this microtransaction. And I think it's obviously important that people that make games make money, but I think that just doing it in such a way that you're paying your fee and then doing whatever you have to do to give them your money instead of interrupting the game at every step and basically destroying the experience of the game itself is kind of the way that it should be done. I mean, if you were watching a movie and they were like, oh, do you want to see what happens in this relationship? Do they kiss at this scene? You should pay me five more dollars. (laughs) You know, it's it's not the way entertainment should work. It's like breaking the fourth wall. Right, we're we're in it for the experience and it's kind of making, making it awkward. Um, That said, um, and in piggybacking on the idea for the indie games, I do think that it's a necessary evil, in part because it allows games like like Lotro or the Forsaken World, which are free-to-play MMOs, to exist. I don't think, because of how huge of a juggernaut WoW is, it's not really feasible to just come up with a monthly fee MMO. Expect a lot of people to play into it, so your developers are making enough money to make you know developments and move the gaming world forward. Right, that business model really isn't going to work unless you have the kind of fan base, dedicated fan base that right. WoW does. So it's allowing these these smaller these people that want to produce MMOs or free to play games the opportunity to kind of have a stake in the way that the games are going to move in the future. Right. Now, also, they're, they're, it is improving with the microtransactions. When they first came out, it was really bad because they, the only way to get like the best stuff in games was to buy it. And half the time, um, it only lasts for a certain amount of time. Yeah, and it, when you buy it, and then you get, they lasted for two weeks, something like that, and then you'd have to buy it again. They're changing it up from that. So, And it used to be in the MMOs that first started using it as well. That's how you would get the best gear. So you didn't even have to go out and, you know, and wow, you do a raid and you get the gear and... Uh, and you work towards that, well, you could just go out and buy everything uh, in the ones that were free to play at first. Now they're improving where the stuff that you buy is genuinely not, doesn't affect the gameplay as much. It's more you get to customize your character. It gets you different colorings, things like that. Like this Universe Online is a good example of that. I started playing that recently, and they, they give you quite a complete game for free, completely. And if you'd like some extra costumes or a little extra flair or you'd like to have an extra dungeon. Not that there's no, you know, I mean, using WoW terms here because it's more prevalent, but, you know, not that there's no dungeons or raids to do, 
that come with the game and that it feels incomplete in any way. It just means that it's like an expansion, but they're like smaller expansions. So instead of paying, you know, another, you know, how much is a WoW expansion normally? Uh, generally about fifty to start. Right. So yeah. instead of paying fifty bucks for a humongous expansion, you're paying five dollars for a dungeon. You know, and and in that way, it's okay because it's new content. It's not you're paying to get yourself a really, really powerful, uh, you know, shield so that you can do this or that, you know, and I, I really think that, like Dustin was saying early on, it caused a serious disbalancing when the microtransactions were allowed into, especially PvP MMOs, because you could go in and you could buy stuff that would give you a huge leg up, and it wasn't, as much as MMOs are based on time and investment, there's a, there's a you know, as long as you're on a relatively level playing field as far as time, there's a huge amount of skill involved in fighting somebody. And if somebody can go in and be like, yeah, you know, we've both played this a lot and we're both pretty good, but you know what? Here's ten bucks. Smash your dead. That's bullshit. <laughs> and that was a serious problem early on. The one thing I do want to point out about what you brought up about just paying for individual dungeons is, whether you like it or not, the one thing that WoW's expansion does is, aside from just giving you access to new gear and new dungeons and stuff, is each dungeon comes with a new storyline. Yeah. So it's not that you're just going in and doing a dungeon and you're getting new gear, which at the end game ends up being what it is. Right. But you know what they're trying to do is they're coming up with a new story, and there's more to go along with it, and each dungeon's connected in some way. But, but you also mentioned um, doing the microtransactions for different color schemes and stuff, which has reminded me of kind of the way the TF2 hats work. Um, but the one thing that I have about TF2 is that they, they do do the hats... And then they also do the weapons, which they pitch as side grades. And I know this because I have also pitched it to most of the people that I talk to as side grades. And so I'm kind of invested in this explanation. But I think that anybody that has ever played a game that has side grades, things are never going to be equal. Ever. There's always going to be something where, at the very smallest level, this side grade weapon will be super awesome for this one person. And they are going to be a lot better with this one than the other one. And so it makes it... So the TF2's weapons make it so that you can kind of balance your character and play it in the style that you want. But I would say that not with not with not concerning the ones that are obviously not as strong of side grades, it still makes it so that there are certain unbalances that are just going to be inherent in the way that that works. And it's also true that they make it that all of their weapons can be gathered by playing or you know, getting certain achievements for some of them for a certain extent. Right. But giving the opportunity to do to do microtransactions to kind of cut that short seems like it's kind of a cheap way of getting out of having to make your game have a lot of long-term playtime. It seems like if you're ha- in if you're putting in these weapons that you get by having a lot of experience in the game then why not just add something that makes you want to play the game more and get better at it and get more invested in it and like the brands and then perhaps be more invested in other things that Valve does instead of just being like, oh, I really need this hat or this this gun, let's just buy it and then now I'll just work on it and then just cut out all of this other time that you could be basically legitimately That's really the interesting. And that goes never... back to what JP was talking about earlier with you know kids and not wanting to take the effort and play mm-hmm. certain things. It's almost like... Here's the easy way out, kids. You know, I don't blame the companies for doing that. They're just making money right. off of something that people in general, well, these casual gamers, are wanting. They don't want right. to earn the stuff. They just want it. And so the game companies go, okay, well, we can make money off this. Why not? 
Right, and, and again, I, that's what it all comes down to. And like I was saying, I think it's a necessary evil. I think it's just going to be the way that things are going to exist. But as you were saying, even, even the microtransaction system is improving. And I think that basically, in getting back to economics is that the market will decide how it wants to pay for games. Right. If it ends up becoming more casual because that's what's making money, then that's just the way it's going to be. Um, but I think that we will find that with more indie developers that it won't necessarily be stuck in that business model. So I think it'll just be interesting to see the way microtransactions go as far as how willing people are to pay or have their experience interrupted in order to feel like they're not paying $50, which is what a lot of it seems to come down to. Right. Uh, now... Sort of related on this, uh, I can't say a whole lot about it, but I just got in as a closed beta tester for a game called Firefall that is going to be a... It's, it's really interesting. It's a completely free to play, but they're going to have microtransactions in it. Uh, it's a first-person shooter MMO. Hmm. Uh, so what's cool about it is, yes, there will be some things like what you can buy in the game is you'll buy color schemes for your for your outfits and things like that. Uh, and like weapon effects, so you 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 know you find weapons, you buy them within game currency by earning it. But then like you can add like you know uh, a fire effect to your bullets or things like that to customize the weapons a little bit by that. Now I don't mind someone having a little bit of an advantage because of doing that, as long as there's stuff that's relatively equivalent that you can earn, um, especially in a in a skill based game in something in a game like WoW or most MMOs. If you're the max level versus somebody who's low and you or the you know depending on the item level, you literally can't hurt somebody who's the upper level. It doesn't matter if you're twenty times better than them. Simply because of those items, because of that level difference, you can't hurt them. That that situation bothers me. But where it's a skill based system, in a shooter, you can run around with a pistol, and if you're really good, you can have a weak pistol and because you're better you can beat somebody who has way better weapons than you do. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so I don't mind having little advantage, people having little advantages in that sort of situation because of that. Does anybody else want to weigh in on the state of games? Well, with the, the state of games, I, I, I do have... Um, we're going to go back around. One of the things, it kind of revolves around microtransaction, kind of not. Um and I hate the term microtransactions in general because a transaction is a transaction. Big, small, it doesn't matter. It's still a transaction. But the one of the things that um, I don't like, it was referred to as EA's Project $10. Oh, yeah. Um, and if you're not familiar with it, you won't actually hear EA use that term. But what it is is it's a way that, and it's set a precedence that now all the video game companies are going out and doing it, is where how it works is you get a game, a new game, and it comes with a code for a DLC. And this DLC, if you don't have that free code, which actually, if you buy the game new, but you buy it like a year or two down the road, that code's actually expired. So, yeah, fun, fun, fun. Oh, that's even, that's news to me even. Yeah, th those that's codes actually expire after a year. Um, so... <laughs> So if it, so, what it is is that these things are things that aren't going to completely break the game, so you can't play it. But it adds certain functionality that you may want to have like in the game, like multiplayer, like multiplayer in sport, in some sports games. Even wow. you have to. Um, I think it's like Tiger Woods. They pulled out all the multiplayer unless you had this code. The they, online pass. The online pass. I um, have no problem with this system, really. Besides what you're saying about the codes expired, yeah, that's that is bullshit. The system itself, I have no problem with, because the 
a, a common problem with the game industry is the used game market. The game developers don't get any money from that. That's true. And so giving them more money, paying that to the developer, get potentially puts more money back into the system to give us better right, games. Right, and that gives rise, I mean, like, the, the, the used game market, robbing essentially robbing money from the developers, gives rise to what we just talked about, the whole them trying to take advantage of people's impatience with the microtransactions. See, but this is where I have a problem with it, is what other industry do they feel they are robbed because you bought something used? If I go to a used car dealership, and I'll just give you a bit of back history, my family ran, used to run a used car dealership, as did Dustin's. If I went to a used car dealership, or if I owned the car dealership, it's not like that if I sold a bunch of used Toyotas, and we had just Fords, Toyotas, and Hondas, and we sold a bunch of Toyotas that month, we had to cut a check and say, hey, Toyota, we sent you this. Or if I bought a brand new sedan, because we, I'm robbing the company because I'm not buying a brand new one, they aren't getting a cut. It's not like, oh, here's a great sedan. Well, you know, it's great and all, but unless you cut a check to the company that originally made it, you can't open your trunk or honk your horn. That's what it feels like to me. Well, and that's just bullshit. You have the difference in, a, in the car industry of parts, service, things like that. And but, cars are wearing you. parts. You don't, play, you don't put a disc in and it just stops working after a while. Okay, but we can also go back to the movie industry. We don't have anything that blocks out the special features on the Blu-ray unless you pay an extra Rentals. download. Rentals. Yeah, rent. Well, if... if now they're doing rental versions, yeah, and you don't get any special features. But you know what? You have rentals in video games as well. They, um, yeah, you, when you rent a video game, if you, you want to, you have to pay the five dollar rental fee and then pay the ten dollar online pass so you can play the damn game online. You want to see what it's like to play the new Battlefield game or the new Call of Duty game online? Well, too freaking bad if you rent it. You have to pay fifteen dollars to try it for five days. What I was going to say, uh, you have to keep in mind how little the people who actually make the games get. I don't know if you guys remember... Oh God, how long ago was it? When the price hike went from, like, forty nine ninety nine to fifty nine ninety nine. Right. At that time, only 40% of uh, the price of the game went to the people that actually made it. It's gotten less since then. Wow. The people who actually make the game make so little money off of the purchases, even brand new... I mean, it, it's a little absurd how little the people actually put the stuff together yeah. to make. And that's true. Now, I'm not saying that it's okay for them to you know, hide content and stuff, but just keep in mind that for as big as the industry is, the people actually putting in the work get paid the least amount. But you know what? A lot of that money, it's not like, oh, well, if we do this, then you guys will get a larger chunk of the pie. No, well, the pie's going to be the same. That's true. You know, if they're making... Only 5%. Well, hey, they're still going to make 5%, but they're going to have more bonuses, quote-unquote, air quotes, because sometimes they don't pay those bonuses or they hide the numbers. Yeah, um, So, what, like, what was it, the Treyarch thing, What I believe it was, that, like, there was the big lawsuit, or, no, Infinity War. Infinity right. War, they had the big lawsuit because uh, Activision wasn't paying their bonuses out. Um, they lost the suit, and what did Activision do with that money? They threw a party and invited JC and, uh, and Rihanna to kind of DJ, you know, have that party. Uh, so you have those sorts of things going on where I can't even so, buy into the I can't even buy into the fact of well that will give them more money because 
Yeah, but it's not like the pie is getting any bigger for I guess them. that's true. I guess the answer is to cut out the middlemen. Yeah, it, and and so that's a, that's a frustrating thing. Or the used game market in general, though, like, I don't really buy used games. I walk in there, they overprice the newer ones. I mean, it'd be one thing if they had, if they walked in, you know, a month down the road that, or six months down the road, a game that came out six months ago was 30 bucks rather than 60 But you're talking like a $5 price difference. That's true. Yeah, so I walk in there and go, well, why would I pay $5 less when I can get the new one anyways? Yeah, well, we, we went in to, to buy the new Battlefield the other day for the PlayStation, and they they had a used one that was $5 less, and I would have had to go online and pay $10 for an online pass. It would have been $5 more than the damn new game. Yeah, but, you know, that's that's one thing. But what about older games when they get... Price down, you know? Well, except most of the time what they're cutting out, it, the, the standard thing more and more is moving towards cutting out the multiplayer. If you go, John just a few months ago went before the new Resistance 3 came yeah, out. Yeah, when I went and bought the, the first Resistance, two. I'm not going to go not, and play that. Nobody's yeah, playing it anymore. You're going on to play the story, and then the new one is the one that you're going to be playing the multiplayer on. What you about you when you get that. games that aren't in multiplayer, though? What happens when you get to the RPGs? Nothing. There's they don't do online passes and stuff and to project Yeah, they do. Those, do they? What are they? they do, well, uh, Dragon Age Two. Uh, you got an extra character that was pretty uneventful yeah. to have. Honestly, I I bought it. I well, it wasn't even actually that. I didn't pre-order, so I didn't get. I had to pay for it. Yeah. Um, but it wouldn't have made a difference. But Dragon Age One. You want to know what it was? That one. Uh, you got the character Shale, the um, the Golem, what and you had. Uh, Which, well, yeah, what, what about the Tower one where it actually allowed you to put stuff away and have your own chest? You know, which was a major inventory yeah, was, awesome. was a major problem. That was one of the things. Um, uh, well, no, that was just a DLC though. That wasn't a that, that was no. That was if you bought the game brand new, you got that for free, and that was one of the expiring codes. Um, but was it the only way to get it? Was to buy it new? The or you had to pay ten dollars for it. You had to pay that for the DLC. Right, but the games historically always give extra stuff to people who are early adopters. Always. Not historically. Well, it's, at least it's in the a, past it's five years, easy. And five years past ago, two or three. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a T-shirt or a extra extra half hour of gameplay, they've almost always given you some some kind of trinket to in to encourage you to buy early game. Yeah, I even have like the Ape Escape Monkey from when they released Ape Escape to take advantage of the DualShock for PS2. It was like the first only DualShock game. But there is a difference between actually having an item and actually having content. There are other like transactions where it's literally a code and it's not like you're downloading something. It is literally just a code to unlock something that is already on the disc. But again, I I don't see the problem because it's basically advertising to buy it from you. It's it's like advertising a product and saying, hey, you know, if you run a store and say, hey, I'm having this sale on this, so you get this when you buy it from me, versus them not offering that same thing. Well, I mean, I guess it really comes down to where do you want your money to go to? If I'm, uh, if I, like, like, like Biggs was talking about, he is a fan of Valve. He appreciates what they do, and how do you show that you appreciate something? You buy their product. So if I think, wow, you know what? Bioware makes really amazing games. I'm going to go out and buy the new uh, Mass Effect 3. What does that say? What does that do? What is, what is my little contribution? What is what was my small piece of the pie? How, how do I communicate that I appreciate what they do and support them? I buy the game new. If I buy the game used, you know what I'm doing? I'm giving the, the developers the middle finger. 
Well, here's what the reason well, that I'm, I'm, I'm supporting GameStop. The, the reason, you know what, and I'm, I'm sorry, and this is an explicit podcast. Fuck GameStop. That's bullshit. Why do I want to support those guys? Those guys are douchebags. My, my issue, though, is that it opens up a precedent and a can of worms. Another thing that with transactions was one of my favorite things, the Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 Recession Pack, quote-unquote, which was four maps, two of them, recycled from the previous game for online multiplayer. How much was it? $15. You know, well, you know but, but the thing stuff, is, is that, you know, what happens is, is that when you get those sorts of things, it just opens up a can of worms. Another thing that's going on with microtransactions is the new Spyro game, if you've heard about that. Yeah. For those of you who haven't, Spyro game is now this little thing where you have this little USB plug and you have the that you plug in and then you have these little figurines. They call them toys, but they are not toys. They are figurines because you can um, because you can't really move them around. There's no moving parts on them. These are the Brian tested. Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. It's 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 yeah. That's. Well, I understand where you're going, but I re- I really think that we're getting away from the, the 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 purpose of this subject, which is the actual game content. Not necessarily how the money flows in the game industry, but like what is available to gamers now. You know, I mean, I understand that that's very much tied in, but we're starting because to, think, video games is a business, right? But I think yeah. I think we're starting to a little bit get away because what, what big part of what we wanted to do and a big reason why we wanted to share this subject with the Pandavanga uh, listeners is that we wanted to you know point out a couple ideas, sure, but then we want to recommend some games for people who are still really interested in gaming as it was and as it should be, in our opinion. So, with that in mind, does anybody have anything else they'd like to say, or can we move into the games that we'd like to suggest and then also complain about? Um, well, you know, my big issue is just the difficulty, difficulty level, like everyone's been saying. Right. You know, I still have not beat Sonic 2. <laughs> <laughs> I have played that game so many times. I've gone back and gotten emulators. I had it on the Genesis until my sister stepped on it and I got another one. And I have never beat that game. But I will fucking play that game (laughs) probably once every three or four years. Mm -hmm. And it is so damn hard. But it was so good. Well, it means something when you do well. You get past that one extra level and it's like, I'm awesome, not... Oh, I just press continue. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> and now, if I, I play a game, beat it in however many hours it takes, you know, it'll never cross my mind again. Yeah. So with that, I think we'll move into our suggestions for, or I guess up, I'm going to start there. So with that, we're going to move into talking specifically about individual games, games that we really feel represent the problem, and then games that we re- feel represent a, uh, an elegant solution, I guess, to how games could be or should be, or maybe better represent what games can do. Um, I will go first. Let's start with good first. A lot of complaints. I think maybe we'll move into a more lighthearted subject, uh, or a lighthearted perspective. Uh, one of the games that I really feel... And again, back to the independent games is really just kicking butt these days with this sort of stuff. One of the games that I came across recently was The Binding of Isaac. And it's simple. Yes. Simple in comparison to a lot of the games that are available out there. Now, uh, just a little bit of background about The Binding of Isaac. It's by uh, Edmund McMillan and Florian Hemsel. McMillan is the CEO of Team Meat, who's also responsible for the Flash game Meat Boy, and then it's 
sequel that ended up coming out on Steam and I think Xbox, Super Meat Boy. Uh, and he's actually been involved in several other award-winning games, Gish, Aether, and Coil. But specifically what I'm talking about is The Binding of Isaac. And along with Super Meat Boy, which I also way highly recommend, but Binding of, Binding of Isaac's a little bit more like you know temporally re- relevant now because we're talking about games that are coming out right now. Uh, it's a roguelike sort of genre. And if the people that aren't familiar with that, roguelike games is like a sub-genre of role-playing video games, kind of characterized by randomization and replayability, permanent death, and traditionally turn-based movement, but this one is, is more like action. But, you know, you've got random dungeons, dungeon crawler for sure, but it's an extremely high level of difficulty. And it's, it's just this sort of thing where it's like trial by death, and you slowly work your way deeper and deeper into the dungeon, and it's not... It's different every time. It's not, oh, I've memorized what to do with this one enemy in this one room, and I've got a pattern down, and I've got to figure it out. No, they throw you a curveball every time you go in there. So it's essentially getting better at controlling the character, dodging things, and all that. And you know, beyond just the basic gameplay and the, the, the reward for working hard and getting deeper into the dungeon, it's, it's very fun, the art style is great, the story is hilarious, and I just way highly recommend it. And it's like, I don't know, it's like under $5. I mean, you really do yourself a favor and pick it up. It's the sort of game that, you know, I guess kind of like a casual game, you could play for a little while, and every once in a while it doesn't have to take up a huge amount of your time, but it very well could, and it would not be wasted time. And it's very, very rewarding, and good and difficult. And along with that, you know, the same Macmillan, I really, really, really suggest Super Meat Boy. For anybody who likes... Side-scrolling, skill-based, high-speed, really clean, polished, smooth, amazing graphics, great controls. I just can't say enough good things about McMillan's work. It's just, it's just amazing. The game. Moving on to the game that I think really personifies the problem with gaming these days. I don't know if I could pick one in particular, but my big beef with gaming these days, as is probably evident by the game that I like and what I said earlier, is the casual games. You know, I have an iPhone. I love using the iPhone. iPhone's great. Amazing form for games. You know, and games like Infinity Blade, Infinity Blade 2, things like that. Genuinely challenging. Hard. Skill-based games. Great. What are the popular games? Freaking... Angry Birds. Angry Birds. For me, yeah, to be fair, Angry Birds isn't the easiest thing in the world, but you know, you know what you can do? Microtransaction. You buy Eagle, boom, beats level for you. Ugh. Anyway, but... So yeah, there's some good, really difficult puzzle games on there, and I don't want to bash those, but my problem is stuff like Tiny Towers, We Rule, that sort of stuff, which is, it's addictive. I've played it, I've played them for hours, it's fun, but it's totally pointless. There's nothing, you don't get any real enjoyment. It's basically like rearranging your room or playing house or nesting. It's just, it's, it's almost sick how like it pulls you in <laughs> and is so interesting and fun. And, and it feels like you have some kind of responsibility to take care of these little fake people, and you don't want to make people that aren't real unhappy. And it's just ridiculous. And, and, but, but it really just don't have anything to freaking offer. It's, that's it. That's it. It's just it's boring. I mean, it's not boring. It's, it's, it's like addictive, but it also doesn't, doesn't really give you anything worthwhile having. And it just burns your time up and burns your money up, and it just drives me crazy. So that, those, those sort of games, those like inexpensive or free casual games that barrage you with microtransactions and advertisements and stuff, and it's just wasting your time. You know, because, you know, I'm, I'm not a little kid anymore. I can't come home after school, do two hours of homework, and then have four or five hours to just jerk around and do whatever I want. 
there's things I have to do. I have a normal job. I work on Pandamanga. You know, I, there's a lot of things that I have going on in my life. I can't, you know, the little time that I do put aside for gaming, it needs to be something that's worthwhile. I want to go away from that being like, I was challenged, and I defeated that challenge, and I feel good about it. Not, well, I just spent three hours building a little tower with stupid little people. It's ridiculous. <laughs> anyway. So that's my opinion. What about you, Joe? Alright, so for a game that's really, I think, personifying uh, what's going wrong with games, it's kind of a weird one, because I like this game a lot, <laughs> but Borderlands. Really? Really. Because it was so stylized. Hmm. Like, a lot, lot of effort went into the look of the game, and, you know, just the, uh, the kitschiness of it that I think that really took away from the content. I mean, you could play through it the second time, and all the bad guys were on you know, another level up, but it didn't take a whole lot to level your own character up to where, you know, one-shot kills every single time. Right. And, you know, after a while, it was just playing it to look at how pretty it was. Right, or just exist in that world. Yeah. Because they created a great universe, fun characters, mm-hmm. and you know, good gameplay, but pretty quickly you felt overpowered. Yeah, and so repetitive. Yeah. Well, yeah, except I, also, that, I mean, Borderlands was intent... The big problem that, that me and JV have found is that the multiplayer is so buggy and trying to... Multiplayer is, is busted as could be on the computer. Mm-hmm. But it was any, just, In my opinion, any game you have to go and like port forward to play online has got its head up its ass. I mean, you know, maybe Valve just has, like, the keys to the kingdom, but I've never had to do that to play any of Valve's multiplayer online games, and, and that's what they do, in some ways, better than anybody. And so, f- that was my experience. We're playing Left 4 Dead, we're playing TF2, and you just plug in and go, no problem. Mm-hmm. Since forever, since Team Fortress Classic, you know? It's like, no big deal. We try and play Borderlands Online, it's like, Man, I can't find this parenting, you have to point far, I'm an asshole, man. <laughs> Yeah, well, I also didn't buy it. Like, I thought it was a good game, but I didn't buy into the hype of, oh, it's this great first-person RPG crossover breed mix. I didn't really feel that. I, I, didn't, I wasn't really in-depth with the story and involved. I, I thought that the ending was kind of a big, giant cock tease, frankly. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> that, that's how I refer to the game is, oh, yeah, that big, giant cock tease ending shooter. Um, yeah. So I, yeah, but I thought it was a good game, but not anywhere near the heaps and praises or what they mm-hmm. marketed it to be. But it was so pretty, and I think it was pretty. that's what got so much attention on it, and that's... You know, what made people give it good reviews, and why it did it as well as it did. So are you referencing the cel-shaded art style in particular? The cel-shading, um, the, the more animated type of uh, AI, rather than, you know, what is really the, the standard with the, you know, the block polygon. No, I guess not polygon anymore, but... No, it's poly. It's still it's polygon, still, yeah. yeah. Well, for people that were familiar with the game 13 that came out, I don't yeah. know, maybe 10 oh, years yeah. ago, it had the exact same problems, where it was like, cell shading was what people sold it on, and then it ended up just being kind of a shooter, yeah. you know, so I feel you on that. You know, I don't think that 
Borderlands is actually cell shaded. Um, I mean, the, the, the textures are done in such a way that it looks cell shaded, but it doesn't act, actively render a black line around the rim of the end of the of the character. Yeah, and it, it's not cell shaded in the traditional sense, but that was definitely the style that they were going mm-hmm. for. It's been a while since I looked at it. Um, if I'm not mistaken, that was on UDK. That's the engine that they were using, mm-hmm. and a huge deal. What does that stand for again? Unreal Developers Kit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Unreal Engine. Sorry, guys. Um, and they were making a huge deal about it as far as within the art community just because they had to do so much development to make that look. Mm-hmm. Um, but, man, it's been a while. Man. And, you know, I, I broke it down. I was thinking about it. it. was, why was this so boring after a while? There were only five different types of missions. Really? There, kill all the guys in this spot. Collect X uh, resources. Flip these switches, uh, find the hidden tapes, and kill the boss. That was the only variation you had in that game. And it was really engrossing, really fun, but it it really petered out fast, Mm -hmm. and it was basically, like, after a while, I was only playing it to, you know, stare at the pretty lights. (laughs) I know I struggled towards the end to, with this repetitiveness. I'm like, I'm near the end. I can feel it. I'm almost there. I can get... That's the ending. <laughs> but, so what, yeah. was your, what was your game that you feel is doing it right, Joe? Uh, what's doing it right? Fallout 3. I think that really set a big benchmark for games because of how much effort they put into the story. Mm-hmm. I, how... Um, you know, it was really easy to use. It was very much a f- first-person shooter, and with the um, the Vats thing that a lot of people didn't like. You know, I, I you know the fact that you could go between, and you, know, you could actually manually shoot at people or use the Vats thing. I thought that was a good sort of like um, equalizer. Well, I had a friend whose father played a good ways into the game because of Vats specifically. Yeah. He was able to get into it and enjoy it and, and eventually got to where he was shooting people. But like the, the initial, like, oh, I couldn't play that. It's like, well, no, you can pause it. He's like, oh, really? Well, I'll try it. And then it because it's Fallout 3, it sucked him in. And then pretty soon he wasn't using the bats as much. And it's just, it's a, it's a great bridge. Yeah. yeah. Fallout 3 is a game that I have not played because I'm absolutely terrified. Because I knew a friend where it absolutely consumed his life. You're talking where, about me? No, no. <laughs> I'm talking about your former roommate. Who, yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, the Tyree. Yeah. Logged over 100 hours in both Fallout 3 and New Vegas. That's not you see my TF2 times. Okay. Yeah, wait till you see my Mass Effect. I have like yeah. 100 hours, 110 hours or something on New Vegas. Yeah, I yeah, have 400 uh, on New Vegas. Christ. Dude, yeah. I don't know how you guys can put that much time in New Vegas. I've, I spent like 30, 40 hours in New Vegas and still haven't seen freaking Vegas. Like, <laughs> That's how you spend 400 Yeah, but, but, but Fallout 3, right from the get-go, has you tied into, I need to find my father. What's happening? Where you know, and you're like chasing him around everywhere you go. There, there's like these brilliant, like subtle, but like peppered with his traces. Mm-hmm. And it felt like you were hot on the trails of some something important, someone important yeah. to you, and you were a pivotal part of that world and that story. In mm-hmm. in Vegas, it all to me, it just felt like a giant expansion pack. It didn't feel <laughs> like it had really anything more to give oh, yeah. as far as story that was really engrossing. You know, and that's oh, yeah. one of the things that Bethesda does so well, and it's one of the things that Fallout Three did so well, is that. I mean, I would wake up 
20 minutes earlier than I normally would, so I can get 15 extra minutes of gaming in before I went to work when Fallout 3 came out. Oh. I was that obsessed with that game, and I mm-hmm. felt like I was going to be the same way with Vegas, and I, I played it for a while, haven't touched it since. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but 3, 3, oh, so good. And it looked good, too. It, you know, the, the graphics didn't take away from the gameplay or the story. It was able to put everything into the, this one package. And, you know, maybe it's the unicorn. It has, you know, the, the gameplay, the graphics, and the story. But, uh, yeah, if, if we can make more games like that, I think I'll keep playing. Yep, definitely. What about you, Dustin? How do you feel? Um, so my two games, I guess I'll start with the, do the bad one first. Um, and this one, really, I don't think it's a bad game. Uh, in fact, I really, really enjoy the multiplayer on it, but they kind of screwed up on the single player, and that's the new Battlefield 3. And actually, we're talking about the difficulty, and this is kind of the opposite. They tried to make it difficult, but they kind of screwed up. Because rather than having it be a challenge, it's just completely random. Too many times they made you a little bit too fragile and that you'll just walk around a corner and a random bullet hits you and you die. And so there, you, know, you have to replay these sections over and over. And it's not so much you know, having a challenge that you're going trying to find a way to beat because you just run out there and you, you know, one time you can make it 10 steps out, another time you can make it 20. Um, and eventually you kind of learn where the directions everything's coming from. But you just die from the randomness until you know where everything is. And so it's like a shooting start. gallery. You just have to memorize where the guys are popping up. Yeah. And it's kind of reminding me of what the administrator was talking about for the controls for Skyward Sword, about it just being kind of like a roll of the dice for how well you do. <laughs> and so it's not, it's not a challenging uh, difficult. It's the difficult in just a frustrating way because you can be on your game and, and really, you know, playing really good, and it just doesn't matter. Because it just the randomness, you'll die anyways. Well, you know, war never changes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another problem is with the story. They tried to copy the competition, mainly uh, the Modern Warfare games. And so they're, it's very predictable that it took itself very serious that made it less enjoyable. Which, single player has never been Battlefield's... Strong point. Well, in the fact, they've only never even had it, right? Yeah, uh, they've only had the two bad company games, and then I believe there was one of the one of the earlier ones had something of a single player. Hmm. But Bad Company Two is one of my favorite single player shooter campaigns so out there. Uh, the characters are all really fun. They're constantly joking back and forth. It's this group of soldiers where the new Battlefield it just takes itself really seriously, and it's just not nearly as enjoyable. Um, and again, it it feels much more like the the Call of Duty campaigns, which again that they have never been really known for having particularly strong single players in the first place. They're just incredibly popular. Right. It seems like like the Call of Duty games in particular, their single player is a, is all about. It's like a throwaway. It's like, well, yeah, it has to have a single player, but I mean, you know, our our our, our roommate, he never even plays the single player. 
He bought the new Call of Duty. I don't think he even knows what the single player mission is at all. He just yeah, dropped he it. Has, I think it's 32 seconds logged on the single player, and that's only because he accidentally clicked on it once. Right, right, right. Yeah, people just drop right into the multiplayer. It's like, I don't even know why they do the single player if they're not going to put the time and energy that they did, and like they did with the Battlefield Bad Company 2. You know, I, I those games, it feels like the single player is to, is like the tutorial. It's like a grand, amazing, really fun tutorial. You know, More it teaches. Often than not, that's what they are. It's what it should. It's but that's what it should be. And and it seems kind of like at this point, they're just like, well, I might as well throw it in there. Who the hell hasn't played a Battlefield game or a Call of Duty game by now? It's like if you're buying a Battlefield or Call of Duty game, realistically, you've probably played a buttload of the other ones. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like the single player is in there just because it's sort of expected. Call of Duty well, is like the new Madden. Or it's the shooter version of Madden. <laughs> right. Well, Battlefield, they really it seemed like they really wanted to make a good single player, but they tried to they tried to take their cues from modern from Modern Warfare and other Call of Duties, which that wasn't their strong point. And so they they tried to go, well, well, we want a single player. Oh, they're they're selling those copies, let's kind of go along the same lines as them rather than just Trying to make their own, they which they did with bad with bad company, and it was really good. Yeah, bad company's awesome. Uh, so my game that's doing it right uh, is Batman: Arkham City. That's a yeah, It was <laughs> really challenging. I mean, you could change the difficulty on it. They one of the best parts is the fighting system. They really managed to balance making it simple enough, but f- making you feel like you could actually do complicated things. Mm-hmm. And that's a balance that a lot of games really have a hard time figuring out. Either it's too complicated and it's just hard to use, or it's too simple and boring. But they really got it down with this, where it's like, you feel like you're actually able to do all this cool stuff, and it doesn't feel too easy, but it doesn't feel overly complicated. Yeah. Right. One of the cooler things is so many games out there, the big challenge is always the bosses. You know, you fight your way through a bunch, through a lot of mindless stuff, and then you get to the boss, and that's that's the big set piece, the the final thing, and that's supposed to be the challenge. They actually, the challenge in this game is most of it is the groups of enemies that you fight along the way, or the puzzles you have to solve. Mm-hmm. And when you get to one, probably one of my only complaints about the game is that the boss fights are generally just kind of figuring out how to get to them, because you know most most of Batman's villains aren't really on par with him. They can't really stand up and fight him. So the, the one thing, my one complaint is that the boss fights do feel a little bit too quick time event-ish, but it's kind of cool that the challenge isn't in those boss fights. It's the rest of the game and the puzzles and figuring out the, you know, how to get to these and through these traps and everything that they've laid for you. Right. Just to kind of step up on that one, the thing that I really love about the Batman games, both City and Asylum, is that they are just fun. You know, yeah. when I first heard From that... cover to cover. You know, just fun. Yeah, when I first heard that Arkham Asylum finally had a release date, I'm like, okay, there's a game that I'm going to enjoy. I didn't have to, like, read in. It's like, okay, what are the mechanics going to be like? I just, Arkham City or Arkham Asylum? City, right. I just knew straight up it was going to be fun because the first game was so well-crafted. It was just so enjoyable, all aspects of it. There was no grind, there was no, oh, okay, let's just get through this part to get to the fun. Just getting around is really entertaining. Right. And I, I was blown away at how they were able to keep all the good stuff from the first game and just pile on top of it all kinds of more, even more incredible things. Yeah. You know, I never felt like they simplified the the bits of, of Arkham Asylum, like the combat, 
like the detective mode and the story and the attention to detail. I felt like it was there in every little bit of Arkham City, and I mean, I haven't played it as much as Dustin had or, or, or the Advent, but I definitely feel like Arkham Asylum was so darn amazing, and then Arkham City just was an extension of that, a, mm-hmm. a very smooth and clean extension of that. They didn't really do anything to simplify it, to compensate for it being a sandbox at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I'll say with the detective, you mentioned the detective mode, is I did feel that that was a, a little bit lacking in Arkham City. Really? I mean, they, they did have you use it quite a bit, but it didn't feel quite... As necessary? Uh, well, it, no, they made it really necessary for yeah. parts, but it didn't feel as creative with it. Mm. Um, it was very much like, okay, you know, you're just gonna, you know a, shot, a bullet was fired into the room... And so you turn on detective mode and it shows where you where the bullet hole is, and then it basically draws a line to where you're supposed to go to out in the city where, to find where the bullet came from. Right. Well, I think part of that was because too many people basically played Arkham Asylum in detective mode the entire time because it was so vital that they want to scale it back big time so that you would see yeah. how pretty the game is I can rather see than that. seeing it through the detective mode I spent, filter. I, I spent easily 50% of Arkham Asylum in... In detective mode, which is yeah. really too bad because it's a gorgeous game. Oh yeah, yeah it just felt like there were it, the the way they used the detective mode in Arkham City was a much less creative. Mm. So really brilliant. Mm-hmm. All right, so I decided to kind of find something that was really different, hopefully something that nobody else has played, and I actually, believe it or not, found a really damn good iPhone app. Let's hear it. So it's called Ellie Help Me Out, and it's a point and click. Or, I guess, point and tap at this point. It's like an adventure game. No, it takes place in one room, and it's a horror game. Ellie Help Me Out? Ellie Help Me Out. It's a Japanese game. was translated decently well. Um, Still a little bit of English? Yeah, I mean, you're not really going to escape it. Obviously, it's kind of a low-budget thing, but... Basically, there's not a lot of background on the character that you're playing. You find yourself in an abandoned, like, warehouse. There's a security system. You see the TVs. You walk up, and you see there's a girl who's trapped in a room. Uh, An earthquake happened right before the game starts, and you can see that part of the wall is crumbled in, is blocking the doorway to the room, and off-screen, the girl is insisting that um, her kidnapper was knocked out by another falling piece of the roof. And so you have to help her try and find a way out of the room by directing her to different things in there. So you find clues, you tap on them, she checks them out. There's a lot of really, really difficult puzzles. I'm talking like, you need to know Morse code <laughs> to figure out some of these puzzles. It's just really brilliant. You have to spend a lot of time looking at the environment... Building on what you already know about the character, you know, what she can do, what she can't do, what she understands, and it's just creepy, even though you only, you essentially see two environments, because there's two sides of the room. The camera can move left and right. So you see the left side of the room that has the doorway that's blocked down, and then the right side of the room where she was chained, there's a gross old bed, stuff like that, and it's just... It's so much fun. It's so simple, but it's creepy. You just get this sense of impending doom, and oh god, I gotta get this girl out of there before the kidnapper wakes up and kills her, or whatever he was planning on doing with her. Just a ton of fun, and not a lot of people have heard about it. Some of the puzzles are so hard that the top Google results for this game are oh my god, 
how do you get past this part? <laughs> and they actually did something really interesting with this game. There are microtransactions, but A-Team, which is the company that uh, ported the game over, if not made it, has clues for each of the puzzles. And the deeper into the game you go, the more expensive the clues are. But that's all that they ask from you. It's a free game. So you could pay a dollar to get a hint. Not the answer to a puzzle, but a hint. And usually that's in the form of a screenshot or a phrase or something like that. So there's still a lot of challenge. So if you're just really stuck, like, you know, the the thing with the Morse code, if you just did not learn that stuff in school, you could go, you could get a hint, pay for it, and then, you know, it'll help you out, but it won't lead you by the hand through the game. And it really makes it a fairly long and really cool game. That's awesome. Yep. And as for a bad game... This is kind of difficult. It's not a bad game. It's a bad aspect of a game. L.A. Noir. Mm. I was considering having that be as just my bad game. It had so much potential. It's a fairly good-looking game. It's interesting, it's different, and it's repetitive as hell. There are three things that you do in that game... Over and over and over again. Look at crap and go, oh, that's not it. Car chase, investigation, interrogation, rinse and repeat until you're sick of it. That game to me felt like... I raced out and got that. I'm a big fan of Rockstar games. I I love anything that pushes the boundaries of the technology and the, the, the depth sensing room. And I, We don't have time to get into all that, but if you're interested in learning about that, IGN has some really interesting... Like video interviews with the people that worked on it and who pioneered this this basically like a depth room that will tell the the height of your face and and reproduce you in, in incredible clarity and detail in a game, which is how they got the very realistic uh, conversations and being able to tell if somebody's lying or whatever, and that's what that game is based on. But to me, it felt like that game was essentially just a giant tech demo. Yeah, just like look what we can do. This is really cool. You know, wow, you can see people's expressions better than you ever could before. Well, how can we make that into a game? Well, I guess that you can tell if someone's lying. Oh, a detective game. Detective game. Well, how can you do that? Oh, well, there's. What can we do with that? Well, interviews. All right, that's good. Well, we've got the you know Grand Theft Auto engine. We'll we'll do car chases and shooting. Yay! It just seemed like there was there was not enough. And like I love noir. I go to the noir film festival in San Francisco every year in the Castro. Try and go at least twice. It's freaking awesome. I'm a huge fan of noir, and, and that game, like, that was why I liked the game, was the atmosphere, and the tech demo stuff was neat, but the gameplay itself was just arduous. And it was so disappointing, too, because the lead-up to the game, you know, looking at the reviews when they were talking about it, it was shaping up to be this really amazing thing. I was like, oh my god, this is going to be so great, can't wait, can't wait, can't wait, can't... Oh, well, I'm done. It was just, it, it was really unfortunate, and I feel like it was so much wasted potential. So now, what are your thoughts, Chaz, on the game? Like, what were your choices? The you know game that really good and not so good. Well, one game that uh, that really sucked up a lot of my time recently was Demon Souls, and I haven't had a chance to play the sequel yet, but I've heard good things about it. Um, but you know, even if even if the sequel wasn't as as good as the original, I will I will always have a special place in my heart for for Demon Souls.
It definitely contradicts the current trend of games holding your hands. Yeah, right, like pause doesn't actually pause it. It's just a menu. Yep, yep. You can be like thumbing through your epic menus and then all of a sudden you get skewered. Yep, yep. And so unforgiving would be one way to put it, but also a good challenge. And that's very refreshing in this modern age. Um, and then I, I'm going to say for, for bad games, I, I know I'm going to get some, some uh, people here who disagree with me on this, but, but uh, I'm not going to name names. I'll let them just pipe up when they, when they feel that it's appropriate. But uh, oh, the Lego series. The Lego series, any of them, really. And the problem that I have with, with them, I know that they're designed for children, but you, you don't get just children playing them. And the problem is it's not teaching them the motor skills they'll need to play the games of tomorrow. <laughs> you, need to, you need to teach your kids that, that you want to avoid the enemy's attacks because dying hurts. <laughs> there should be penalties for dying. Right? There should be penalties for... Well, I mean, you say they're designed for kids. Man, we were kids and we were playing Super Mario 3. Super Mario 3, if you didn't... Do it right. If you got hit, if you got touched, dead. Period. You die, start over. Too damn bad. <laughs> one of my favorite games I have that I played all the time oh, yeah. is now known for being one of the, the hardest games out there. It's the original Contra. <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, if you missed Ninja Gaiden. Ninja Gaiden, Contra yes. Ninja Gaiden, another one that's really cited a lot is the um, Bionic Commando is another one. Yep, yep, absolutely. So, and it, really, the, the, the main problem that I have with it is if you if you take the... The venom out of the snake. You take the penalties out of failing, and it takes the joy out of victory. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, for my good game, um, well, just a bit of a tangent here. I am a shameless Bioware fanboy. I make no excuses of it. And I love RPGs. That's my favorite genre of games. I... That's just where I like to play. So my good game is Mass Effect 2. And if you've ever played either of the Mass Effect games, they're these great space opera games. Mass Effect 1 definitely had some problems with it um, there that are kind of infamous. Ele- long elevator rides, repetitive dungeons, and a broken inventory system. That being said, still an amazing game, great characters. Mass Effect 2, much more of an action-based game than an RPG game. It was streamlined. It was very streamlined. It, it was amazing. I loved the game. I was completely involved with all the characters. I thought the universe was so fully fleshed out. I love the fact that the choices that you made in Mass Effect 1 actually did have some effect on the uh, universe yeah, of Mass Effect 2. the old game saves is brilliant. Yeah, Absolutely brilliant. Fun. And it made me go back to the original game and go, well, I know these things happen, so I want to play this and do this, this, and this. And I did that. And now that I know certain things going on in Mass Effect 3, I'm like, crap, now I need to go back and play Mass Effect 1 again so I can do this in Mass Effect 2 so that right. it affects this I in Mass Effect 3. I have two separate game saves for the Mass Effect series. One, one going in one dramatically different direction than the other, and I play them through both in each of the games. I'm not even going to say how many game saves I have <laughs> right. in either of them. Um, but it's just such an amazing game with great dialogue. Um, like I said, the universe is fully fleshed out and well thought out. 
and the characters are amazing. It's very funny. At times, you know, if I'm playing as the dick, I don't want to do that because, like, I really like this character, so I don't want to be a dick to that character. But I'm playing as a dick, so that's what I'm going to do. But And I actually feel guilty about being a jerk to a video game character. How pathetic is that? Um, so, yeah. It, yeah, exactly. It means they did a really good job. But on that thing, I actually have two bad games because while we didn't really get into some of these things on our Where Have All the Good Games Gone segment, they are kind of examples in the RPG world that I feel that games have kind of gone... There are some problems with them. So first off, even though I said I'm a shameless Bioware fanboy, Dragon Age 2, which is actually still a good game... But it's the first time that I could feel where EA was involved with Bioware and was rushing them. That game felt rushed from beginning to end. I I thought that um, the combat really still needed a bit more polish. They spent too much time trying to make a graphics engine that um, made it look more unique than they did on a lot of the gameplay aspects. I felt that some of the characters were not as well fleshed out as they were in the original Dragon Age, which I won't also say how many save games I have of that. <laughs> I played through it once, and I've struggled to try and play through it again. And I felt like one of the problems is, is that they have a ridiculous amount of repetitive dungeons. And here's another spot where you can tell that it's really rushed, is... The way that they change their dungeons around is that you just enter through a different door that you then in a different dungeon, or they'll have like other places where the doors are just closed and you can't open them. But you know what? The mini-map still shows that that's content that you can walk through and go through. I remember the first time I was going through a cave dungeon, it said that there was a whole doorway and a whole subsection here, and I spent like probably a good 10, 15 minutes trying to figure out, well, how do I get into that spot here? It's the door. I see it. Why can't I open it? And I just said, forget it, and went on through until down the road I realized, oh, that's how they've set up everything. They don't even bother to change the mini-map to say this is no longer a part of that is in this dungeon. Also, so lots of recycled content. Lot, lots of ridiculous stuff, amount of backtracking, recycled content. And then story-wise, it felt like a lot of things they really wanted to make Act 2 the big thing and probably the finale, but they had to wrap up some storylines and the entire Act 3 felt so tacked on. And it was so dull to me. And Except that Act 3 is the is the big thing that actually affects like the whole overall world. It is. And yet, somehow, it is it is the thing that affects the overall world, and yet, somehow, it still feels tacked now, on. Are they pushing towards a trilogy with this? Yes. Mm, possibly, yeah. yeah. Possibly um, even more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because the first one's all about the heroes of the Grey Warden, and the second one's all right. about a different guy who kind of escaped that. Uh, place. Well, I kind of got the feeling that they're setting up a story where they're like each game is basically building up kind of a character from each of these areas that are supposed that because it doesn't they say something about your character going off to like you get getting like summoned by the hero for all their no they're they're trying they're trying to find either. The character, the hero of Ferelden, which is the character from the first game, which if you play in a certain way, because you can choose the way that your characters are, is can actually be related to the hero from the second game, which is the champion of Kirkwall. They're trying to find one, the other, or both in um, this way. And I actually 
really enjoyed the way that they built certain things where it's like a story frame within a story frame because you're hearing a story being told by a guy who's telling the story who you also know lies about stuff. And so they'll actually play certain parts and they're like, that's bull. That's not how that went down. He's like, fine, here's how it really went no, down. That's funny. Um, so those sorts of things are really cool. But So it had some stuff going. It, it definitely had some good things, but it just felt really, really rushed. Like, this was successful, we need another hit, push this out now, 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 now. The other RPG that I have is Final Fantasy Thirteen. Mm. Uh, <laughs> oh, get me out. Yes, we can hear the groans. So, um, Who it, else here has played that? I have. I have not played it, but I watched you play. <laughs> Come on, everybody, get excited for Final Fantasy Thirteen too. Uh, yeah, you know. Final Fantasy Corridors too. Yeah, and like that game, people would say, "Oh, you just have to get through the first like eight to ten hours, and it opens up and it's great." No, I spent like thirteen hours in that, and I knew that the game had very mixed reviews, and some people really didn't like it. So I got it on GameFly. And when I got it from Gamefly, I tried desperately to muscle through to get to this part where it gets good, really, it does. I couldn't make it. I couldn't do it. I sent it back, and then I changed my entire Gamefly queue. I removed any JRPG that was in my queue. I, <laughs> I put up, like, shooters, third-person shooters, and sports games just, at the top of my queue you just to shower. try and get rid of the bad JRPG stank. <laughs> that was the Final Fantasy thirteen. I, I would say that I, mean, I played a lot of that game. I would say that about mm, maybe twenty four hours in is the first time that you're not in a corridor and there's like a little hub town. I'm and sorry. The little hub town is somebody's apartment. It's like two rooms. I'm mm. sorry, but if you have to play a game for twenty four hours before it gets quote unquote before good cha- before it changes, yeah, the corridors aren't bad, but the corridors should be apart. Not the whole damn thing. The whole it was like walking down a hall for the whole damn game. And and you know what? We were talking about games being easy, like getting easier and easier. That game played itself. They had an auto battle system mm-hmm. where all you had to do was, in a lot of instances, just press the. How X far button. did you play? How far did you play it? Um, I got to. Just how many hours? Just guesstimate. Like I said, I got in thirteen hours worth. Okay, so again, yes, it takes way too long. But the the fighting system is dramatically different than the turn based fighting systems uh, of yesteryear. The yeah. you know with the, with the action you know bar and everything. And, and I'll give them the, points for trying something different. Well, the thing so. of, the thing of it is this: it is a it is a natural organic progression of the old style. If you are trying to head in the direction of more fast paced, and believe me when I say it does get to the point where you're still working really hard and scrambling to survive. It's just that instead of instead of saying, okay, you do this, you do this, and you do this, you're basically saying, right now, I'm going to change to a, a configuration that heals me. And then as soon as I'm healed, I change to a configuration that attacks. And then as soon as I'm done attacking, I change to a configuration that is going to debuff the enemy. And then while they're debuffed, I'm going to stun them. And then I change to a configuration that's going to buff me. And then I go back, and it's like, and so you're still scrambling, you're still going through the attack, defend, heal, buff, debuff stuff. 
But instead of bracing, breaking it up piecemeal into individual characters, your entire team works as a synergy. No, I, I, it works, and it really works well. But it, uh, it again, it takes way too long for that system to come to fruition and be really genuinely. Fun. Exactly. I saw that the system was great in theory, and possibly you know when I got into hour seventy thousand, when the game gets <laughs> decent, um, then maybe I could see where oh yeah, this system's badass. But at that point, I could still literally just auto battle, which I was because I was trying to get to the part where the game gets good. I know, right? Um, like I said, they have an auto battle system where you just press X every now and then and your guys do all the fighting for you. I don't even know if you have to press X. I think you did. Do you? Yeah. yeah. Um, and you so, spam X. Yeah, you just spam X. Just got, like, um, a, just got like a rapid fire control and just hold it down. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. Just, just tape X down and you're good to go. Um, and so it was just so, so bad. And it was just a form of where... Uh, I think that they've completely scrapped the whole idea. They had this idea of Fabula Nova Crystallis was the whole idea of Final Fantasy Thirteen, where they had a PSP game, which has been renamed, which was supposed to take place in the same universe. Final Fantasy Versus Thirteen, which I'm going to pretty much say is dead, which was the one that I was looking forward to. But they were all supposed to tie in together, be in the same world, and kind of tell a full story. But after how bad it was, and it was just a sign that certain people aren't willing to change, or they aren't changing in the right direction. You know, having a game that was where it takes 20 hours to get good may have been alright in the old dungeon-grinding days of the Nintendo and Super Nintendo. Not so much nowadays when there's a lot more out there. I really really think the Final Fantasy series is kind of... Yeah. Fallen off the horse. Fr- right frankly, if you want to play a good Final Fantasy game in this console generation, and you have an Xbox 360, find uh, Lost Odyssey by Mistwalker Studios. It is pretty much what I consider the spiritual successor to Final Fantasy, and it is a really awesome RPG. Or if you have a DS, you can go get Final Fantasy 3, which is oh, they've re-released all of them. Yeah, so hard it makes you want to hurt. Oh, like in the 3D version, like they. Oh, um, for the 3D version, they actually they re-released. Well, no, no, not like 3DS, but like totally. No, 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 no. Uh, they re-released one recently. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. Yeah, they and um, they also did uh, on PSP Final Fantasy Four, which has some updated graphics, has some cutscenes, and has the um, the what's the Wii game thing? Um, uh. Crystal. No, no, it's like they actually have lost chapters which take place afterwards, but it's on the what's considered the Wii Virtual Console or the PlayStation oh. version of the Wii. Mm-hmm. The classic game things. You can buy like little games that are in the 16-bit uh, system that are basically stuff that takes place after the events of Final Fantasy IV with the Final Fantasy IV characters. Mm-hmm. So they have those um, after uh, series events happen on the PSP game with updated graphics and all that sort of stuff as well. Cool. Lastly, Biggs, what what are your two games? So, for my thumbs down, I'm I'm getting back to the microtransactions here, and you can really pick your you know free to play MMO du jour on this one. But mine were uh, Lotro and uh, the Forsaken World series of games. And the thing is, is I was a raid healer in WoW, and for a couple of years of my life, I was pretty sure that I was like put on this earth to raid heal in WoW. And I was like, <laughs> what I did. So when I quit playing WoW, I kind of went. You know, dedicated my life to finding an MMO that didn't cost as much money and didn't absorb my life and didn't make me do friggin' dailies. And so I tried Lotro and I tried the Forsaken World. And, you know, as I was playing, you know, it was kind of fun, you know, doing stuff with, you know, Striders and etc. and Lotro. 
And then, but, you know, I was starting to feel more and more like I was being handicapped by all these things that I was seeing other people in the game have that I didn't. You know, like horses and all these, you know, quick level up in gear and stuff. And found myself sitting there one day saying, you know what, I sure wish that I would just pay that $15 a month. And then, like, physically reenacted the scene from A Clockwork Orange when the guy in the wheelchair realizes that it's Alex in the bathtub and you're shaking with fright and what's going on. <laughs> and then realized that maybe MMOs just aren't for me, and it just kind of made me sick of the whole thing. And, you know, I, I don't think that's fair to MMOs, but I just think it was my experience with the microtransactions that caused that. Mm-hmm. For my good game, I am sticking to Portal 2 for a number of reasons. The first is that it pretty much is something that can appeal to anyone. I mean, even if you're not a gamer, if you enjoy amazing humor, interesting stories, if you enjoy fun physics trickery, freaking anything to do with portals is just full of all of these different kinds of mind-bending puzzles. It's just great for, for anyone that has you know, the time to put into it. And plus, it's, you know, fun, and you're not having to, like, shoot people, and it's not super violent, so it's, you know, great for kids that are willing to put in kind of the the mental, you know, effort. But it also, I have worked on puzzles and solved them that made me feel way smarter than any of my experience in grad school has ever made me feel. (laughs) And it's just incredibly rewarding, but it's also intensely fun. And getting back to kind of taking the easy way out is... It doesn't spoon-feed you the puzzles, but as you go, it kind of builds your skill set at each type of puzzle, so it gives you the, the skills you need to figure them out, right. but just kind of sets you loose and lets you do what you want and gives you all the time you need to experiment and whatever to figure out these, these puzzles. Mm-hmm. And plus, what's brilliant, another brilliant thing about Portal 2 is that you don't need to play Portal to enjoy Portal 2. They exist in the same world, but you don't need the first game to play the second, which is a lot of times problems with really, really good, you know, sequels. It's like you feel like in order to be keeping up that you need to play the previous game, and that doesn't really exist here, although they are in the same world. And luckily, even though you don't need to, Portal 1 is relatively inexpensive, and it's like a four-hour game. And, and, and amazing. like, probably still... I mean, if you look at number one games of all time lists all over forums and stuff, Portal hovers in the top five pretty much all the time. Often in the top two. And additionally, it's it has a single-player campaign that's great, that basically takes everything from the first Portal, adds more things, and makes it awesome, but also has a two-player multiplayer that is its own frigging campaign. Like, you're not going through the old stuff and doing it with another player. It's its own story, and it's just as amazing as first player, or single player, if not better. It's absolutely amazing, whether you want to play by yourself or with other people. Um, that and it has pretty well-balanced microtransactions, I would say. It has the ability for you to, you know, feed the Valve system your money, but it's done in such a way that you're just buying cool little knickknacks for your two for your two-player kind of character. So, like, like, like... What do you call it? Bling sort of gears? Right. So it has like flags or it has, you know, different skins. You can also do fancy gestures, you know, because the game has an amazing gesture system for two-player. You can like high-five the other person you're playing with or, you know, do like pull like silly pranks and stuff. And it's... What's great about all of these... About that balanced micro microtransaction system is that I have never ever felt as though I needed to buy this stuff in order to be successful but when I'm playing Portal 2 with my girlfriend, it's like fun to trade flags and stuff it like becomes, it makes the microtransaction interesting because now I have this other person who, you know, wants to you know, play with 
fun color stuff, and you know, so it makes that interesting for me. Um, and and so again, it's it's really great for anyone, and I honestly stick to my guns when I say that if you have a significant other of any persuasion, and you are going to be away for a while, this is the only electronic you need to buy to make your your distance seem less distancy. It is portal two. That's right. <laughs> That's, 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 that's really romantic. It's Portal 2. <laughs> you guys went really G-rated with the direction I was going with that joke. Yeah, I did. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, huh. Oh, well. <laughs> well, I hope everybody had a good time today. That's all we have for you. Uh, we will be back, not next week, but the week after. And the subject will be comics. Again, we will have master comic writer Joe... And hopefully a couple other friends. Uh, as always, myself, JP, and my fearless co-host, The Brian, will be there to entertain and educate. <laughs> uh, thanks again to all the guests today. Uh, a lot of really cool things were talked about and very interesting perspectives. We've clearly educated opinions were shared. I hope that our listeners have heard some good stuff and maybe are introduced to some new games that they never heard about before. So, again, we thank you for coming and checking us out. Please make sure to visit Panda Manga and check out our updates and blogs. I am going to try and be regularly posting sneak peeks and previews of some of the art coming up. Again, uh, Decaster stuff should be in the mail soon, so I'll hopefully try and put up uh, a little piece of that for you guys to take a look at, as long as he's willing to kind of show off a little bit of his art early on. And, yeah, so thanks, everybody, for coming, and we'll see you guys next time. See you later. Happy New Year. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. Be sure to visit pandamanga.com for all your indie comic needs. If you have any questions or comments on today's show, please visit our forums at forum.pandamanga.com. Anyone interested in becoming a contributor with Pandamanga, Visit our contact page at contact.pandamanga.com and complete the form located there. This is Dustin, and we'll see you next time.